Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. What the hell do you think you're doing right now, man? Waving down the bus. Man, put your hand down, dog. Are you out of your mind? You actually expect me to get on a bus? No, I was hoping we could push your car across town. You know why? Because we just don't do stuff like that no more. You have no idea, do you? You have no idea why they put them great big windows on the sides of buses, do you? Why? One reason only. To humiliate the people of color who are reduced to riding on it. I don't know that. And you know, you can feel the staple center with what you don't know. During this last week of 2020, we're exploring what a post-pandemic future might look like. The future of education, restaurants, and public transit. The pandemic has thrown the nation's bus and subway systems into a death spiral. Ridership is down, so there is less fare revenue. We're talking millions of dollars in operating losses. So agencies are making service cuts, which is making the lives of people like Judith Howell a lot harder. It is still dark. It's just turning light when I get off of work. You see, she works an overnight shift as a security officer in Washington, D.C., and it is vital that she get to work on time by 11 p.m. sharp. Whether you're a commercial cleaner, a home care health worker, or a restaurant worker, you don't get a lot of leeway for being late. But during the pandemic, D.C. Metro cut service on her bus route, and Howell had to rely on her neighbors to drive her to work, or on Uber. Because Unlike a lot of white-collar workers who get to zoom into the workplace from home, Howell has to actually show up. The majority of people in this country are working-class and middle-class people, and that's who the system should be designed for. And even though across these public transit systems, ridership is down, among essential workers like Howell, ridership is similar to what it was before the pandemic. And many of these writers tend to be lower income and people of color, like Myra, who lives in the Boston area. My community that doesn't have the luxury to work from home, that are in the front lines, working jobs that depend on our physical labor. We're not going to use Myra's last name because of her immigration status. Every day she rides buses and trains to get to three different restaurant jobs in three different cities. And I don't really have another option because I don't have a car. I can't drive. And then during the pandemic, Myra saw bus routes getting cut. She saw buses on the remaining routes making fewer stops. And that meant at least an extra hour for her daily work commute. So she's even thinking she might have to quit her third job. Myra and other writers have been worried that some of the temporary service cuts they saw during the pandemic might become permanent 
if these agencies don't get more relief money. It is full steam ahead for the MTA's doomsday budget. The has left the already cash-strapped agency in crisis. Metro is proposing sweeping cuts to service. SEPTA is making more cuts as it Bart just announced it's asking for another the half MTA a says they billion must reduce services where there are fuel riders. The MTA says it could be forced to reduce service on subways and buses by up to 40 percent. This past fall, the Metropolitan Transit Authority in New York proposed to cut service by up to 40 percent on subways and buses and lay off 10,000 transit workers. Pat Foy is the chairman and CEO. It is uh, so bad, also, that it is worse than during the Great Depression in terms of the downward effect on ridership and our revenues. Uh, from September 1929, the month before the stock market crashed, to 1933, subway ridership was down 13 percent. In the worst days of the pandemic in New York in March and April, subway ridership was down 95 percent. And even now, although it's greatly recovered, it's down 70 percent. That matters because we get half of our revenue from our customers in tolls and fares. So you can imagine the financial damage it's caused. Now, Congress has just passed another coronavirus relief package, and that legislation does include $14 billion for transit agencies, which does stave off some of the most drastic transit cuts in places like D.C., Boston, and New York. That will fill our deficit in 2021 and put us in a position in 2021 at least. We will not have to make those types of service cuts or lay off uh, colleagues. Okay, so what kinds of service cuts may still be in place even after this stimulus money gets to the MTA? We will need an additional $8 billion of federal aid for 22, 23, uh, and 24. Having said that, in 2021, we will be running reduced service on Metro North. And we'll be looking at service on subways and and buses as well. We're just right-sizing the service for the levels of ridership that we have. So, Foy says, the $4 billion the MTA will get in this latest coronavirus relief package will help in the short term. But it doesn't solve the long-term transit crisis. As I listened to Foy talk, it felt like I had heard this story before, way before the pandemic, this story about chronically underfunded public transit systems. And it made me wonder, why is the story always like this? So I got on a Zoom call with Yona Freemark. He's a senior research associate at the Urban Institute. And uh, when we got on, I glanced at the wall behind his head and he had all yeah, these exactly. transit maps. <laughs> and then this map up here is a uh, imagined map of a uh, transit system for the Game of Thrones world. <laughs> they go into battle on subway cars. That's right. The question I wanted Freemark to answer was, why are transit agencies always struggling? One of the problems we have is that we're very focused on maintaining the status quo. Everything about the investments we make in our transportation system are ensuring that people can continue to get around in the same ways that they did, you know, 10 years ago. And so for the most part, the transit options we've been giving people have been very similar year in, year out. And many of the support programs that have been announced during the COVID crisis have been about maintaining that status quo. Like they're just Band-Aids. Yes, absolutely. They are complete Band-Aids for a transit system 
that is inadequate for most people around the country. We speak a lot about transit in places like New York or Washington because those are the places where transit is relatively high quality. But the reality is that there are low-income Americans all over the country who are in desperate need of an alternative to driving around, but who simply don't have access to good transit options. Do you feel like during this moment, this pandemic, lawmakers in Washington are paying more attention to what public transit needs? The Congress in 2020 demonstrated that there is bipartisan interest in supporting public transit. What we really saw this year was an endorsement of the idea that public transit is an essential service. And I hope that it sets the standard for thinking about a sustainable, equitable recovery after the pandemic. Do you feel that there is indeed wider public buy-in when it comes to rescuing public transit right now? Because I could imagine that there is also a lot of people out there thinking, wait, I'm stuck at home right now. I'm not going to be going anywhere. Don't put money into public transit. Put money into unemployment, into food stamps. Very surprisingly, this year we saw a major endorsement of increased funding for transit in communities where you might not expect it. Places like San Antonio, Texas, uh, Austin, Texas, San Francisco region, city of Seattle. In all those places, voters actually passed new referenda that will increase their own taxes to pay for transit. This was really surprising because, as you said, we're in the middle of an economic uh, recession. People have lost their jobs. And yet they said, for us, public transit is an important enough priority that we're willing to increase our own taxes to pay for improvements. And Freemark says if more and more voters keep voicing support like this for public transit, he hopes eventually lawmakers actually will allocate more than just a Band-Aid. As your body grows bigger, your mind grows slower. It's great to learn, because knowledge is power. It's Schoolhouse Rockin', but you're up and on your favorite Schoolhouse Rockin'. With COVID-19 vaccinations underway, we have dared to start thinking about what life might look like when normal returns. And for many, that will mean getting kids back to school. With millions still learning remotely, the learning losses are piling up. Studies have found some Black and Hispanic students could enter the next school year a full year behind. Well, former Education Secretary John King Jr. has been thinking about what needs to happen to make up for lost ground. He is now president of the nonprofit education Education Trust, and among the things he's calling for, a national tutoring corps. This is something some of our international peers are doing, investing in mobilizing, particularly recent college graduates, as tutors for younger students. Interesting. So it's an, an employment program for the college students and also helping the, the younger students make up ground? Exactly, exactly. Senator Coons has proposed uh, a bill called the CORE Act that would double the size of AmeriCorps. And you could imagine how that could be used to mobilize tutors who could both work with students to address their academic needs, but also build really positive mentoring relationships with students. And we have decades of research showing that uh, high-intensity tutoring can help students make up lost ground academically very quickly. What about changing the curriculum to make up for this year and acknowledge just that they haven't covered the ground they would normally cover in an academic year? How hard is that to do? How should school districts be thinking about that? That's going to be a huge challenge. It's always true that when a teacher walks into the classroom, kids are entering with a range of 
skill levels and backgrounds. But now those gaps, student to student, will be even wider. Some students will have had their parents sitting next to them, supporting them through their learning while schools were virtual or hybrid. Other kids will have parents who were essential workers, and maybe it was just an older sibling who was at home with them. And so you're going to see big gaps in the classroom. Teachers are really going to have to individualize kids' academic experience. Uh, they're going to need to respond to exactly where kids are. They're going to need to diagnose what they've missed, what they need, and then address any gaps that students have. Stay with individualized learning for, for a second, because I know you used to, to be a high school social studies teacher. How hard is it when you have 20 students, 30 students, maybe more in a room? What would that even look like? It's really challenging. It means you've got to define different tasks for individual students. You've got to have time to meet with students in small groups. Ideally, you'd be doing that in partnership with this national tutoring corps that I described. So you'd have some help, but tailoring the instruction to students' individual needs is incredibly challenging, especially when you have students who may be multiple grade levels apart in their academic skills. There are, I think, ways that professional development can help. There are some technology tools that could be helpful, but that also requires resources. And one of the big worries is that if Congress doesn't act, if states end up making 5, 10, 15% cuts to education, the districts that will be hit the hardest will be those districts that have the most students with tremendous need. And so you'll see a widening of our already unacceptably large gaps in performance. Is there any upside, any opportunity here, if we're reinventing school and rethinking how schools should work and serve our kids to do things better, to make things better than they were before the pandemic? A couple hopeful things. One is, you know, we've long had a challenge with inequitable access to advanced coursework. So some kids in high needs districts or rural communities don't get the same access to advanced placement classes, to take college courses. What this experience has done is shown us that really shouldn't be a barrier. We should never again have a kid who's told, uh, you can't take AP Spanish because we don't offer that in this building. Uh, we've seen that virtual blended learning is possible at scale. I think about uh, Northern Virginia Community College that last summer offered free college courses to any junior or senior in their region online. They knew they were offering the courses anyway for their students, so they opened them up to high school students. Uh, so hopefully we'll see a lot more of that uh, expanded access to opportunity. The other thing that I think this period has challenged all of us around is developing student agency. In a virtual or hybrid learning environment, students have to set goals for themselves. They have to manage their work. They have to ask questions when they need help. They have to collaborate independently with peers. Those skills are things that will serve students well in college and in careers. And hopefully we've learned some things about how to cultivate student agency that will carry over to teaching and learning practices. But let's be clear, even, even with those hopeful opportunities, 
COVID has been an equity disaster for education, and we have a lot of work to do. John King Jr. was Education Secretary in the Obama administration. He's now president of the Education Trust. Thank you. Thanks so much. Gus T. 2001. Uh, So for many years on the compensatory call-in, we've done segments, and I have talked about the significance of sequencing, meaning that uh, news segments, it's not like they're just taking audio reports and playing them randomly. Uh, They generally have some sort of reasoning, uh, some sort of organization uh, behind why you hear certain audio segments, certain news reports in the order that you hear them. So on Wednesday, December 30, NPR's uh, daily program, uh, Morning Edition, uh, they have uh, like an hour or so of new segments about lots of different things. So this is a segment. You're going to hear it exactly the way it aired with the exception of one. So it starts off with the segment talking about the officer in Ohio goes to Black Lives Matter. There was a report, the full title, after hours long debate, Argentine senators vote to legalize abortion. And then the report on Tamir Rice. But that's the exact order that they played on Morning Edition NPR Wednesday, December 30, right at the close of 2020. So I've been told. In Columbus, Ohio, city officials have fired police officer Adam Coy. Coy, who is white, shot and killed Andre Hill, a black man, during an early morning non-emergency call just over a week ago. But some local activists say the firing, it isn't enough. They want the officer to be indicted. From member station WOSU, Nick Evans reports. Just after 1 a.m. on December 22nd, two Columbus police officers responded to a non-emergency call on Oberlin Drive. It's an unremarkable suburban street, lined with quaint single-family homes from the early 1960s. A neighbor would call police about an SUV, repeatedly cranking up and shutting off. When he arrived, Officer Adam Coy saw Andre Hill walking from an SUV into an open garage. According to another officer on the scene, Coy calmly asked Hill to walk out. Body camera footage shows Coy shooting Hill just seconds later, and then Coy and other officers failing to provide first aid as Hill lay on the ground. According to documents released this week, officers handcuffed Hill, who was unarmed. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther seemed stunned after seeing footage of the shooting. He was particularly unnerved by the officers who failed to render aid to Hill. With literally no attempts to revive and aid this man, who had committed no crime, was dying. That is a stunning disregard for life. The incident comes less than three weeks after a sheriff's deputy shot and killed Casey Goodson Jr., another black Columbus resident who was shot entering his home. In this incident, Mayor Ginther called for Coy to be fired, and on Monday, the city's public safety director did just that. Hours later, dozens gathered at the site of the shooting. Hannah Abdur-Rahim helps lead a bail relief group called the Central Ohio Freedom Fund. At the demonstration, like other protesters, she turned her focus on the neighbor who called the police in the first place. Andre Hill deserved a mechanic, not the cops. He was having car trouble. He didn't deserve a death sentence. If you were that much of a concerned neighbor, you could have went up to his car and asked him, is he okay? And Abdul Rahim told the crowd that simply firing Adam Coy isn't enough. She wants to see him charged with murder. 
whether he'll face criminal charges is now in the hands of state and federal investigators. The Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation is looking into whether Coy's use of force was unlawful, and the U.S. attorney is reviewing the case for potential civil rights charges. As for what should replace that early morning call to 911, Hana Abdul-Rahim says part of the answer is residents asking directly if someone needs help before calling the police. She also wants local officials to set up alternatives. It's on the city to provide resources to the community to have ways to contact, you know, someone for a non-emergency resource, whether that's a mental health crisis or whether that's, you know, I am having a fight with my spouse. The police don't always have to come. And that's a message that's being stressed all across the country as politicians and residents wrestle with the best way to handle calls for assistance. For NPR News, I'm Nick Evans in Columbus. Louisville, Kentucky. It's often said that it's either the northernmost southern city or the southernmost northern city in the United States. Muhammad Ali was born here in January 1942. Now he's one of Louisville's favorite sons, but he grew up in a city still racially segregated, according to America's Jim Crow laws. Two more Louisville police officers will likely be fired in connection with the fatal shooting of Breonna Taylor back in March. Both officers have administrative hearings with the police chief in the coming days. Amina Elahi of member station WFPL in Louisville reports. The two officers each had key roles in the Breonna Taylor shooting. Detective Joshua Janes acquired the warrant that led officers to her door after midnight, and Detective Miles Cosgrove fired what the FBI described as the fatal shot. Both have been on paid leave for months. Janes is accused of falsifying parts of the affidavit for that warrant, while Cosgrove is reportedly accused of violating use-of-force policies. Thomas Clay, a lawyer for Janes, says his client did nothing wrong, even though Janes admitted part of his sworn affidavit was, quote, incorrect. Clay says his client provided sufficient evidence to support the warrant. I think the outcome has already been predetermined. I think Detective Janes is going to be terminated, and uh, we're prepared to do what needs to be done in order to appeal that decision. A lawyer for Cosgrove declined to comment. This all began when police entered Taylor's apartment by force as part of a botched drug raid. Taylor's boyfriend, fearing they were intruders, fired at police. Police fired back, killing Taylor. Investigators never found anything illegal in the apartment. The potential terminations of Cosgrove and Janes come after months of protest and cries for justice. Shamika Parrish-Wright has been a leader in Louisville's protest movement. If they was fired early on, that would have saved the city a lot of time, a lot of money. That would have saved us a lot of trauma, a lot of sacrifices that we've made to be out there in those streets for now 217 days. She says this is the right thing to do, but the fact that it took so long sends a message about accountability. Louisville's interim police chief Yvette Gentry made the call based on findings of an internal investigation into policy violations. They would be the first officers connected to this shooting fired since June. An anonymous grand juror who heard the state's case said the move to fire Janes and Cosgrove makes him feel vindicated. He says these officers were wrong and should be taken off the force. They skipped over a lot of protocols, and we don't need that. Now, if other charges, criminal charges, come up, that would be great. But you can't walk them out until you have taken that first step. Like many others, the grand juror is keen to see what the ongoing federal investigation into the incident produces. The FBI's Louisville field office has been looking into the shooting since May. What led up to it, what happened that night, and what's happened since. When complete, prosecutors with the U.S. Justice Department will decide how to move forward. For NPR News, I'm Amina Elahi in Louisville. 
Mama says police misshoot black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? Is it true? It is NPR News and a developing story now. Minneapolis Police Chief Madera Arredondo and City Attorney Jim Rowder have just briefed reporters on the fatal police shooting of a man at a South Minneapolis gas station last night. Authorities did not identify the victim, but the family of the man has done so. They have identified him as 23-year-old Dewal Eid of Eden Prairie. Now, shortly before the news conference, the department also released police body cam footage of the incident. It is unprecedented for the department to release footage of a fatal officer involved shooting this quickly. We're going to hear now from our Brant Williams, who was at the news conference. But first, let's hear some of what Chief Arredondo had to say. I have been in close touch with our community partners, our law enforcement leaders, and my core team throughout uh, the last uh, day or so. Um, I I had the opportunity to meet uh, with the deceased uh, father, um, family members, and community leaders, and they were able to view uh, the body-worn camera footage uh, prior to its public release. Uh, The BCA is conducting this investigation, and so again, Many of the details or questions that those may have will be uh, directed towards um, the BCA. Uh, Here's what I can add in terms of what transpired last night. Uh, Our officers, again, from our community response team, uh, were conducting an investigation based on a weapons investigation. And uh, that resulted in a traffic stop at the 36th and Cedar Avenue uh, Holiday Gas Station. A lot of us uh, know that our communities have been dealing with so much this year, with the pandemic, increase in violence, uh, certainly many in our communities facing very hard times financially. And so I know that when situations occur, uh, it can can certainly uh, add to trauma for those who are experiencing trauma already. Uh, But I also want to say that we need to keep peace in our city. We need to keep safety in our city. And so while we recognize that there were groups that gathered last night uh, in the area of 36th and Cedar, and we know that there are those that may plan to uh, convene this evening, again, I have to stress that we need to make sure that we keep the peace in our city. That was Minneapolis Police Chief Madera Arredondo moments ago at a news conference at which uh, Brant Williams was there. He joins me now. And Brant, let's talk about this uh, footage that was released, this body camera footage, uh, uh, fairly quickly, we should say. Uh, it's about a minute or so. Uh, what does it show? Right. Well, Tom, at the beginning of the video, you can see there's, from the officer's perspective, he's looking at a, there's a white car in front of him. He starts by shouting, Uh, stop the car. He's yelling, hands up, hands up. Uh, And you can see the, the, you can hear the car gunning its engine. Uh, Several police vehicles, uh, there appears to be a a black SUV. It's hard to see if there's any markings on it, but it doesn't look like it's marked. Um, Boxes that white car in uh, about 20 seconds into the video. Uh, If you slow the video down, you can actually see what appears to be a spray of glass going out from the driver's side of the of the car and that is when an officer either says back or he uses an expletive and um kind of ducks and he comes up and he begins to fire and you can also hear then a hail of about i counted maybe 10 to 11 uh, gunshots 
All right. Now tell us about how the response has been different with this shooting, uh, Minneapolis police fatal shooting here, uh, compared to, let's say, uh, or since the, the killing of George Floyd. What's changed? Well, we have seen uh, the police department and the, the mayor rush to, to get information out to, to calm any uh, backlash from the, from the community. Um, obviously, the response to the killing of George Floyd um, was very vocal. There were thousands of people who marched by day, and there was, uh, as we know, unrest and some criminal activity in some of the evenings. Uh, they wanted to avoid that. You'll remember earlier this summer, there was a man who was suspected uh, in a murder case um, who had actually taken his own life. But there was rumors that were spreading. People were starting to say that an officer had actually shot and killed the man. And that led to uh, a reaction from people in downtown Minneapolis. And as we know, right. um, not long after that, police made that video of the of this young man taking his own life um, available to the public to, to quell that. So this seems to be a part of that um, effort to not only be transparent, but also try to calm passions from people who are who are going to be upset by this. All right, Brent Williams, uh, continuing to follow developments in the story this afternoon of a, a fatal police shooting uh, in South Minneapolis last night. Brent, thank you very much for the update. You're welcome, Tom. To tennis. In Nashville, authorities have now determined the identity of the Christmas morning bomber. On Sunday afternoon, investigators gathered just a few blocks from the blast zone to announce a breakthrough. Based on the evidence that we've gathered at this point, we've come to the conclusion that an individual named Anthony uh, Warner is the bomber. That he was present when the bomb went off and that he perished in the bombing. All right, that is U.S. Attorney Donald Cochran. Warner, we should say, built a bomb that destroyed a block of historic downtown buildings. And NPR's John Burnett is in Nashville uh, following this story. John, good morning. Morning, David. I mean, this investigation seemed to go pretty quickly. How, how, did, they, how did they do this? Well, luck and old-fashioned police work. Uh, first, they set up a tip line. Then they released a picture from a surveillance video that showed Warner's white RV with the blue stripe down the side driving downtown right before the blast. And people apparently recognized the RV and called it in. Second, forensic investigators found human remains at the blast site. Agents with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation were able to match DNA from the human tissue with DNA taken from inside of a duplex that Warner owned and lived in. Um, it's in Antioch, a suburb southeast of Nashville. And finally, a Tennessee Highway Patrol officer combing the debris field found a piece of the demolished vehicle with a VIN number on it, and they were able to use that to find out the RV was registered to Anthony Q. Warner. Wow, it does sound like old-fashioned police work. Um, do they, are they certain now that, that he acted alone, that he was a lone bomber? Well, here's the conclusion of FBI Special Agent in Charge Doug Korneski. We're still following leads. But right now, there is no indication that any other persons were involved. We've reviewed hours of security video surrounding the recreational vehicle, as well as we saw no other people involved. And then uh, Police Chief John Drake, who's a 32-year veteran of the force, made this statement for the benefit of his hometown, which was deeply unnerved by this ordeal. As I've said earlier and several times before, Nashville is considered safe. There are no 
no known threats against this city. Okay, so we know who the bummer is now. We know that he acted alone. What, what about a motive here? Well, that's the missing link now, David. Uh, the FBI is asking anyone who knew Warner to please reach out and help them understand why this man uh, would commit this monstrous act. Uh, he was not on the FBI's radar as an extremist, hadn't made any threats, didn't espouse a particular political philosophy they were aware of. Media reports say he was a self-employed IT specialist. Some folks here wonder if he had a bone to pick with AT&T. He parked the motorhome directly in front of a major AT&T data center, and then that huge blast knocked out telecom services for hundreds of miles. The company says it's gradually bringing service back on. The mayor told CBS Face the Nation yesterday that locals feel like there has to be some connection with the AT&T facility and the site of the bombing, but we don't know yet if that's true. But it wasn't just that AT&T facility, right? I mean, this, this was really destructive. Like, what, what, what does it look like downtown right now? Well, the crime scene looks like the aftermath of a car bombing I witnessed in Baghdad, a blast crater, the hulls of burned cars, blackened buildings, um, landscaping trees torn apart. It's just a picture of violence and ruination. Officials have asked the federal government to help the city rebuild that shattered area. And we're starting to hear now from some of the officers who, who first responded to this explosion. I mean, what, what are they saying? Well, you need to remember that only seven people, including some of the police, were taken to the hospital with non-critical injuries. And people are calling it miraculous. Uh, the only fatality was the, was the culprit. Today, uh, those cops are being hailed as heroes. Knowing the RV could explode at any moment, they raced into these nearby apartment buildings and pounded on doors to get residents to evacuate. The five police described how a speaker inside the RV was playing these eerie recordings over and over, warning folks to get out because there was a bomb inside, and then ominously counting down to the blast, and playing the British singer Petula Clark's 1964 hit, Downtown, of all mm -hmm. things. Here's Metropolitan Nashville Police Officer Amanda Topping. You just have a feeling something's not right, and something that weird, you don't get stuff like that, so... I was standing there by my car and I heard music just came on. I tried, I went to go get closer and I heard it and I was like, oh my gosh. God, these descriptions just, just bring you there to what happened. Yeah. What else did these officers say? Well, uh, Officer James Wells said he was creeped out too. Uh, when the blast nearly knocked him over, his immediate reaction was to check on Officer Topping. As I turned around, for me, it felt like I only took three steps and then the music stopped. I just see orange, and then I hear a loud boom, because uh, it, it rocked me that hard. I started stumbling. I just tell myself to stay on your feet, stay alive, and I just take out in a full-out sprint, and I'm running toward Topping to make sure she's okay. I have to tell you, David, several of the police choked up as they described how they feared for their fellow officers. Uh, and uh, I'll give the last word again to Officer James Wells, who experienced the 2020 Christmas bombing in the way that soldiers bond after being in combat. This is going to tie us together for forever for the rest of life and so you know the love for them is even bigger now and christmas will never be the same for any of us wow that's just extraordinary these events in nashville um and paris john burnett uh thank you so much for covering it you bet david there is a new wrinkle in the suicide bombing that rocked downtown Nashville on Christmas morning. According to police records, the perpetrator's girlfriend warned police over a year ago that he was making bombs in an RV at his home. NPR's Hannah Alam has been covering this and joins us now with more. Hey, Hannah. Hi there. Hi. So, okay, 
Authorities have been saying that the suicide bomber was a man named Anthony Warner, 63 years old. He died in the blast. So far, he's been portrayed as, what, sort of a, a loner who wasn't on the radar of the authorities. But we're learning more details about him now, right? That's right. Uh, now we know that an attorney for Warner's girlfriend told police in August 2019, that's 16 months before the explosion, that Warner was building a bomb in an RV at his home. And this comes from police records that were first reported on Tuesday by the Tennessean, as well as the local news station, uh, WTVF-TV. And those accounts say local police responded to a 911 call about a distressed, possibly suicidal woman who claimed that her boyfriend was concerned with the military and bomb-making police show up. They say the RV was fenced off. Uh, an officer noted that it was equipped with, quote, several security cameras and wires attached to an alarm sign on the front door. Mm. So the officer apparently knocks and knocks, but got no answer. There was some follow-up at first, but then after late August, it appears, the attempts to investigate stopped. Stopped? Uh, did they ever interview Anthony Warner about any of this? No, it appears they did not. And at a news conference today, the police said, A specialized officer did follow up by driving past the house for a week or so, even sniffing, literally sniffing around to see if he smelled explosives. But the chief says he couldn't get close to the RV, that they didn't have probable cause to get a search warrant. And, you know, today the chief did say that hindsight is 2020. He acknowledged that there could have been more follow up. Um, But there's also murkiness on the role of the federal authorities in this. Uh, The FBI says it received a records request from the local police. The FBI was aware that it was connected to allegations of bomb making. They ran a check, found nothing serious in Warner's background. Same thing at the Department of Defense. But one big question that the FBI so far hasn't publicly answered is, wasn't the bomb making threat serious enough and unusual enough to get the attention of the local Joint Terrorism Task Force. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked Mary McCord about this. She's a former senior Justice Department official who oversaw terrorism cases. She says in this one, there are still a lot of unknowns, but even from the little we do know, there seem to be enough red flags to merit more follow-up. And she said, for one thing, the security camera is an alarm system around an old RV where there's been allegations about explosives. Here's McCord. Something more seems to me to be warranted when we're talking about a report of a bomb, and and objective indicators that something that he's trying to protect is happening in that RV. So would you, Hannah, characterize this as a situation where authorities just dropped the ball on this investigation? I think that's the big question. I, I asked Seth Jones that. He's a former national security official, now an analyst. He says it's too early to talk about blame, but he says it's definitely a case that needs more scrutiny. There has to be a very serious look, I think, at Anthony Warner, how much they knew were were the threats about him properly followed up, including by his girlfriend. These are serious questions because this is what we've seen in the last year. These are the most likely kinds of attacks in the U.S. right now, which is single individuals. And so, yeah, Jones is saying if it turns out authorities didn't do their due diligence in checking out this kind of threat, then that's a big problem. That is NPR's Hannah Alam. Thank you, Hannah. Thanks, Elsa. White supremacy is the sickness. The name Dr. Susan Moore has become a hashtag on social media. Moore, a family physician, died of COVID-19 in an Indiana hospital last week. She was 52. Days before she died, she posted a video on Facebook in which she said her doctors treated her as if she were a drug addict. She said they were planning to discharge her from the hospital too soon. This is how black people get killed when you send them home and they don't know how to fight for themselves. 
In that video, which has now circulated all over social media, Dr. Moore maintained that if she were white, her care for COVID-19 would have been very different. Joya Creer-Perry is president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative. She joins us now. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. What went through your mind when you first watched that video of Dr. Moore speaking from her hospital bed? You know, it was so deeply saddening and very familiar. Um, As the world watched the murder of George Floyd and it stopped the world in its tracks because although we'd heard about police violence before and we knew it existed and we've seen data and reports, that's the same way that I felt watching Dr. Susan Moore described what was happening to her inside of the hospital. It was a glimpse into the side of what we all know to be true, um, what we've experienced as members of the Black community inside of healthcare, as healthcare providers, as an OBGYN, and also just knowing that it was not going to end well, knowing that she was begging and pleading and wanting to be seen and valued as fully human, and that wasn't happening. You, I know, have worked with hospitals on anti-racism training. Is there data? Do we know how common what Dr. Moore described as her experience was? Well, we do know from the data, we work in the Black maternal health space, and there's been some studies that show that medical students believe that Black patients don't feel pain the same way, that they believe that Black patients had thicker skin. Um, there were also a study that was done out of the University of North Carolina that showed that if there was a Black patient and a white patient asking for a pain treatment to, you know, have to, after having that major abdominal surgery, that the Black patient got it in a less timely manner and less frequently and with the, the less amount. So every time that I've worked with hospitals and I've said, okay, well, maybe it's not you. Maybe that's just that hospital or that group. Run your own data. Look to see by race if you're managing your patient's pain equally. If when they come in, they get the same treatment. And I've yet to have a hospital come back and say, see, I told you we're doing it all the same. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that day. You're making a point that Dr. Moore herself made in that video. She said she believed she was denied more pain medication or as much as, as she needed because of her race. Um, I want to mention that the hospital where she was treated, Indiana University Health, has put out a statement. They say they can't comment on her specific case because of privacy laws, but they say the hospital is committed to equity, to reducing racial disparities. They say they're going to do a full investigation. What what will you be watching for in that investigation? I'm excited to hear that they want to investigate. It was a little traumatizing for communities. I know that these privacy laws are important, but if you've been a community like the Black community or LGBTQI community or uh, Indigenous folks who've been had mistrust from the healthcare system because we've been abused by it and lied to and not treated well, when we hear things like we can't comment, that doesn't engender trust going forward. Some people listening might be wondering, hang on, overprescription of pain meds of opioids has been a huge problem. Doctors and hospitals have struggled with how to balance against overprescribing with, obviously, the very real need for care and, and pain relief. Do you think that was at all in play here? Yes. I'm sure that the providers in that hospital are, were hypersensitive and very aware of the pain issues and the pain pill issues. But unfortunately, when you are from a community that has been not centered and and has been marginalized, the assumption is, well, you must be pill-seeking like these other people, and we must then count. So the assumption is really real, and I've experienced it my own self, where family members are assumed to be drug-seeking, pill-seeking, and never just looking at the person as an individual saying, would I want my 52-year-old friend, as Dr. Susan Moore could be any of our friend, to be lying here in pain? Don't I want to address her pain? Don't I want her to be pain-free? Don't I value her? And that's what we're asking for. 
Dr. Joya Creer-Perry. She heads the National Birth Equity Collaborative. She was speaking about the experience of Dr. Susan Moore, who died of COVID-19 on December 20th. Dr. Creer-Perry, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Actually, um, so, you know, in, in this country, we get very little reporting really about <clears throat> about how corona is affecting the African continent. What is it, how, how is Corona actually reported on the African continent in America? You know, uh, what, what, what is there anything reported about Corona on that continent or is it zero? The development of COVID-19 vaccines is raising questions about their rollout across the world. As the richest nations buy up the lion's share of doses, how and when will developing countries be able to vaccinate their populations? Countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo are now wrestling with that reality in a nation that's already endured recent epidemics. Chris Ochamringa has more from Kinshasa. It's a typical private clinic on the outskirts of Kinshasa the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Patients come here with all types of ailments. This schoolgirl is here for a fever in the midst of a power blackout. The doctor and healthcare workers here are used to making do with the little they have. They also have a big need. We have no medical supplies to prevent the spread of COVID-19 here. There's no disinfectant to sanitize the clinic or masks to give to our patients. We are exposed to the disease. The government should support us with some equipment. But the Democratic Republic of Congo is one of the poorest countries in the world. Decades of conflict and corruption have blighted its healthcare system. Even so, the DRC has learned how to win wars against epidemics. A campaign to vaccinate 18 million children here helped the DRC overcome the world's largest measles epidemic in the last two years. The government declared the end of an Ebola outbreak in a northwestern province last month. That outbreak was the 11th to occur in the DRC since 1976. The World Health Organization says vaccines and treatments played a role in fighting the outbreaks, as did the DRC's success in mobilizing health workers and educating the public. The DRC is now trying to use that hard-won experience. Our previous fightings on uh, against infectious disease, not, not, not only Ebola, but measles, uh, yellow fever, and other epidemic diseases help us a lot to organize uh, fighting on you know, uh, this, this uh, pandemic uh, crisis. But there's a long way to go. When the pandemic broke out in March, many Congolese suspected the government made the announcement just to get funding from donors. They ignored the health measures aimed at limiting its spread. And the DRC is now experiencing a second wave of infections with over 14,000 cases recorded. And health authorities are eager to use COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, There is a special group uh, of scientists and public health specialists uh, who are discussing on all those issues related to COVID-19. But definitely, I think our country is committed to, to, to use COVID-19 vaccination as a tool. But the government doesn't have the money to procure the vaccines. Its healthcare system is grappling with other diseases like cholera, polio, and monkeypox. 
Even if it did have the funds, rich nations are stockpiling the world's most trusted vaccines, buying up doses that outnumber their populations. That leaves most of Africa scrambling for options. We have uh, developed a strategy for the continent, which we call the, the, the whole of Africa strategy for to access vaccines in a timely, fair and equitable manner. The Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and its director, Dr. John Kengasong, are working with a global initiative known as COVAX to ensure that countries like the DRC get access to the COVID-19 vaccines and are not left behind. But an internal investigation by the program's own promoters reportedly indicates it's struggling from a lack of funds and faces a high risk of failure, leaving billions of people without access to vaccines for years. As the richer nations reserve more doses than they need of the U.S. and European-made vaccines, Africa may have little choice than to turn to the Russian or Chinese vaccines. Africa CDC is watching over all vaccines that are being tried. We are analyzing the results and only the most effective and efficacious vaccines will be allowed to be used on the continent of Africa. But it may be years before any of the vaccines are available for many Africans. And though some African countries are already preparing to supply coolers for the COVID-19 vaccines across the continent, a recent study conducted by the World Health Organization found that only 40% of African countries are prepared to roll out a vaccine. Poor infrastructure, frequent power outages, Roads in disrepair, all will be challenges for the DRC when planning how to store and distribute the vaccines. The DRC is among the countries that are not yet ready to roll out the COVID-19 vaccine. Health experts here say they are still discussing the modalities of introducing and distributing a vaccine that will be suitable for their environment. And though the African CDC has promised not to leave them out, African nations do not know when or how many doses of the vaccines will be made available to them. The incident manager of the DRC's COVID-19 pandemic team told us they have no idea yet when a final decision will be made. And when the DRC government does get the vaccines in hand, it will face resistance from some Congolese citizens in the rollout. I'm not sure about what was used in making that COVID-19 vaccine by foreigners. I won't accept it if they bring it here. Congo has a lot of plants with medicinal properties that can cure that disease. I won't accept any vaccine because I know Jesus is much bigger than any medication. He has kept me alive for so long and only he will decide when I die. I'm not worried about COVID-19. If that vaccine will really save lives, then it's okay for our leaders to approve it and start vaccinating people. The epicenter of the DRC's COVID-19 pandemic is in the capital, Kinshasa, home to 12 million people. The vast majority have to hit the streets daily to put food on the table. The lockdown restrictions imposed by the government to curb the spread of COVID-19 earlier this year had a devastating impact on their lives. It will take a lot of convincing from the government for the population to turn up in large numbers to get vaccinated once it's approved. But it's the key to solving the crisis here, a nightmare many are longing to wake up from. For the PBS NewsHour, I am Chris Sochamringa in Kinshasa, Democratic Republic of Congo. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans 
from colonial times to the present. On its way out, the Trump administration is increasing oversight of the nonprofits that do the hard work of finding organs to transplant. The policy change is meant to boost the overall number of transplants performed in the U.S., so fewer people die waiting. But it is also exposing the geographic discrepancies in organ procurement. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN in Nashville reports. Organ transplants are not as simple as someone dies and someone like John Casso gets a new heart. Well, you never expect to get the call that says, we have an organ, but. It was 2004, and Casso had just been listed to get a new heart. But this one was from someone who had traded sex for drugs. Doctors couldn't guarantee there wouldn't be infections. I followed the advice of the surgeon who said, let's turn it down. Casso could afford to be a little more choosy. He lives in the Appalachian Mountains of northeast Tennessee. And the region's poor health outcomes, like higher rates of strokes, fatal car crashes, and gunshot deaths actually benefit organ recipients. In other parts of the country, particularly the East and West Coasts, people don't die as often from those causes that make for good organ donation candidates. That discrepancy is what some organ procurement organizations have pointed to to explain why they collect fewer organs compared to other regions. Organ procurement organizations, or OPOs, have always self-reported their data, but under the new rules, that ends. This is about understanding why certain areas are not performing well, and seeing if we can fix them. Dr. Seth Karp directs the transplant program at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. He says new federal rules hold these nonprofits accountable for all the potential donors they missed. By the new accounting, Las Vegas yields roughly four times as many organ donations as New York City. If it is true that certain parts of the country should only be able to recover one-fourth of the number of donors as another part of the country because there are inherent differences in those areas of the country, um, that's fine. You know, we can live with that. I just find that hard to believe. And yet some organ procurement officials say the new rules miss a big problem over which they have little control, finding people to take the available organs. This month, the OPO that stretches from Connecticut to Maine had a 59-year-old in a fatal bicycle accident. CEO Alexandra Glazier says the family signed off and the OPO considered the kidneys in good shape. We made thousands of organ offers and ultimately weren't able to place those kidneys for transplant despite almost 33,000 offers. Once organs are turned down a few times, other surgeons assume there must be something wrong with them. That's why Glazier questions the new rules meant to increase transplants. They focus on organ procurement, but don't subject surgeons and transplant centers to more scrutiny. We know that there is opportunity to do a lot better system-wide, but what this requires is the full engagement of the system. Glazier also objects to another new policy. If low-performing OPOs don't improve they would eventually be taken over by high performers. Glazier calls it a hunger game scenario that, in her view, could lead to even fewer organ transplants. It's easy to point fingers, says Dr. Matthew Cooper. He directs kidney transplantation at MedStar Georgetown in Washington, D.C. Perhaps it's not as simple as you think it is. It's not as simple for me as a transplant program to go to a donor family and say, listen, you know, why aren't you donating your organs? I would probably be really bad at that. And Cooper worries that a punitive approach won't benefit any of the nonprofits doing the work. I fear that we're going to have more chaos than we're going to have value. What everyone agrees on is that there are big differences in organ availability between states. The change in how to track that may confirm some regions just have it harder, 
or show that a few organ donation nonprofits need to step it up. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. Welcome to Atlanta where the play is played And we ride on them things like every day Big beats hit the streets, see gangsters roaming And parties don't stop till 8 in the morning Our next story begins last February At an assisted living facility just outside of Atlanta Ernestine Mann stood in front of her new neighbors to give a short speech Well, good evening everyone Good evening She was dressed to impress in delicate earrings and a flowy blouse with a little hint of shimmer. I'm so glad to see all of you here, and this is my first year living here, and I'm having a great time. She was up there to read aloud a proclamation celebrating Black History Month. To celebrate the remarkable accomplishments and lasting impact of the country's great African-American leaders and citizens. The people in the room were themselves great African-American citizens. Doctors, musicians, veterans. Ernestine had been a teacher in Atlanta for 30 years. In a little more than two months, at least 17 residents, including Ernestine, would be dead from COVID-19. Their families wanted to know. Why did so many people die at the one home that served a black community, but not at the nearly dozen other locations in the state run by the same company? Meg Anderson of NPR's investigations team has some answers. The facility is called Arbor Terrace at Cascade, and it's managed by the Arbor Company. By now, many of its other Georgia locations have had COVID cases and deaths, but nothing like what happened at Cascade. There, 54 residents and 36 staff members caught the virus. That's not the only difference, though, between this facility and the rest. Arbor Terrace at Cascade is also the company's only facility in Georgia in a Black neighborhood, which, to some of the families, just doesn't seem like a coincidence. Their brand has definitely been tarnished, but it doesn't appear it's going to be tarnished in the white areas. It makes you really wonder that. I mean, I would drive by there just to look and see what was going on. I'm still trying to put it together. How did that happen? That was Trisha Johnson, Cedric Hendricks, and Judith Hatch. They're all children of residents who died or contracted the virus. The outbreak at Arbor Terrace at Cascade is part of a grim pattern we've seen playing out all over the country. Black people are getting and dying from COVID-19 at higher rates than white people. And to understand how it happened here, it helps to understand a bit about this area of southwest Atlanta, which is called Cascade. That's Hoosier Memorial United Methodist Church on a Sunday a few months before the pandemic. Ernestine Mann was there most Sundays. She was always smiling. She was just an open person. She loved people. And everybody here was Miss Ernestine Mann's friend. Pastor Gary Dean says the congregation there mirrors the community, which is older and almost entirely black. Over the years, the late Congressman John Lewis lived in Cascade. So did several former Atlanta mayors. But until about the mid-1960s, much of the area was white. It was one of those white flight things where the blacks were moving into the area more and more. And, the, uh, of course, the whites, they, they left and the community became 
basically all black. Living in Cascade became a badge of honor in the black community. And when Arbor Terrace opened there in 1999, it became a kind of status symbol, too. Ernestine Mann moved there in August of 2019. It was looked upon as one of the creme de la creme um, assisted living facilities. Her daughter, Carla McKinney, says she fit right in. She wasn't the resident that just kind of showed up for the dining hall and then just stayed in her room. She was not just over there wasting away. March 25th was the last day that McKinney and her brother Bill Mann were able to see Ernestine alive. The facility had restricted all visitors a few weeks earlier, so the family had come for a window visit. We could see her coming across the um, lobby, and she was toddling like a baby just beginning to walk. They knew then that something was off. She was able to talk, but see, if you know her, my mom spoke, she spoke strong. This particular time, she sounded extremely weak. It was almost to a whisper. Their mom seemed dazed. Her eyes were darting around. She had trouble recognizing her granddaughter. We ended up not staying as long as we thought we might have because she clearly was tired and something wasn't right. And um, when we did get ready to go, she stood up and she stumbled. McKinney called afterward to have someone check on her mom. The staff agreed that something was wrong. They called an ambulance. And then once she got to the hospital... You know, we blowing up the hospital trying to find out what is going on. Ernestine's coronavirus test came back positive on March 27th. She was placed on oxygen. By March 29th, she had taken a turn for the worse. That day, Bill Mann and McKinney talked to their mom on the phone. I still try very hard to get the sound of her voice out of my mind, even to this day. My mom was crying out for help. She says, come help me, help me, help me, you all. Please come help me. The family couldn't come visit because of coronavirus restrictions. To hear her crying out for help, to know that I couldn't get there, just that desperation that she seemed to be having at that moment, it's hard, it's hard. Ernestine died that afternoon. She was 84. And I understand we're all on the clock, and sooner or later we have to go, but not like that. She didn't have to go this way. Ernestine's death was the first in a wave of at least 16 others at the facility. Four families, including Ernestine's, have filed lawsuits against the company, which denies any wrongdoing. In an email to Cascade Families on April 17th, the president of the company, Judd Harper, wrote, quote, Many of you have asked why Arbor Terrace Cascade experienced these results. We wish we could tell you. Our protocols and processes are exactly the same in all of our senior living communities. To be sure, some of the outbreak at Arbor Terrace at Cascade can be chalked up to bad luck. The company did have infection control policies in place before the pandemic. But there were other factors that made this place vulnerable. In early March, Cascade employees like Jasmine Higgins, a resident assistant, were beginning to feel nervous. Are there going to be any masks? Are there going to be more gloves? Will we have this protection? Because these are things that they're saying that we need. State records say that even by March 27th, when the outbreak had already begun, the facility did not have enough masks, other personal protective equipment, or hand sanitizer. The company denies that it didn't have enough PPE. But by then, it was already too late. Fifteen staff members were reporting influenza-like symptoms, according to those records. Higgins woke up exhausted on a Friday in late March. Later that weekend, she knew she was sick with something. 
she asked her supervisor what she should do. The response, tough it out. I was like, y'all told me not to come into work and I'm telling you that I'm sick. So what do you want me to do? And they were like, you have to come in. In a statement to NPR, the company said staff were always instructed not to work when sick. It was like they were telling us one thing, but then they really meant like it doesn't actually matter. We just have to tell you this. Assisted living facilities in general are vulnerable to infectious disease. Today, nearly 40 percent of all U.S. COVID-19 deaths have happened at these types of facilities. African Americans have higher rates of diabetes, high blood pressure, and heart disease. Those are all risk factors for COVID-19. That meant that once the virus got inside, the residents at Cascade might have been hit harder. Location matters, too. A facility surrounded by more COVID-19 cases is more vulnerable, and the neighborhoods around Cascade had a lot of cases early on. That's a pattern across the country. A study last summer found Black neighborhoods, regardless of income, had more COVID-19 cases in the early months of the pandemic. Racism transcends class. Middle-class Black neighborhoods are treated differently than middle-class white neighborhoods. That's Andre Perry, a fellow at the Brookings Institution. Many Black neighborhoods simply have less community wealth. And near Cascade, even though the median income is about the same as Atlanta's, the median home value is roughly $100,000 less. Wealth matters when bad times come. And we know that wealth is a protector of sorts, that when we have these economic or health crises, wealth enables us to shelter more, and that difference can mean life or death. The Arbor Company told NPR that each community has its own budget and that funds are not shared across facilities. Marcus Davis, a former maintenance director at Cascade, said Cascade always seemed to be short on money. Davis remembers a company-wide event a few years ago. The other locations showed up in nice, newer vans. We pulled up, and this van was, like, dilapidated on the side. It had arbor tears at Cascade, but it had bubbles uh, where the paint was peeling off. When it rained, the water came inside. Like, it was, it was a bucket. Davis says they'd been asking to get the van fixed for years. Later, the Arbor Company did purchase them a new van. In 2017, when Hurricane Irma was coming toward Georgia, he says they asked the company for a generator. We've asked for that several times throughout our budgeting, and the answer was always no, you don't need one. He says Cascade's power went out for two days. The staff bought glow sticks to put around residents' necks. Eventually, he says the corporate office got them a portable generator. These might sound small compared to the pandemic, but Davis says... If you're always shortchanging something, if you're always the last to be a part of something, you can't help but to fail. In April, Ernestine Mann's family held a graveside service for her. The funeral took place on a bright, sunny day. Ernestine's family stood by her coffin under a green tent. They passed out white roses. Pastor Gary Dean gave a short sermon. So far, he's led 10 funerals for people who have died from the virus. They've all been small. I just feel so bad for all of them because you can't celebrate their life the way it needs to be. The gathering was mostly family. A few dozen other people still came. They stood at a distance among the graves or by their cars. My silent McKinney's husband, Jeff, sang a hymn. 
In normal times, Ernestine's funeral would have been standing room only, with family and friends, her sorority sisters, and the many students she taught across three decades. That day, at least one former student was there, the undertaker, representing the many other lives Ernestine had touched. Meg Anderson, NPR News. Maroon fights two battles. Russell Maroon Schultz, the black liberation fighter and self-taught historian, is presently engaged in at least two battles for his life. One is colon cancer, stage four, which he has been fighting for about a year. Two is COVID-19, which he has been fighting him for about a month and a half. Given his resilience, resourcefulness, and fighting spirit, it's difficult to say if either of those challenges, or both of them, will prevail. The 77-year-old has been held by the DOC since 1972, and the DOC isn't helping his chances. They continue to deny him access to surgery for his cancer diagnosis. For several weeks, Maroon was held in a makeshift infirmary in a gym with 29 other men because of the surge of COVID cases in DOC facilities. His daughter, Teresa, reports he has since been returned to his cell but the cell was extremely cold and guards refused him sufficient blankets. The struggle continues. Human rights groups like the Pennsylvania Poor People's Campaign, the Human Rights Coalition, and the Coalition to Abolish Death by Incarceration, known as CADB, have been protesting in Harrisburg, calling for release of COVID prisoners like Maroon. Maroon has, over these long decades, taught scores of younger men how to read, how to think, and how to study. His supporters demand his immediate release. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. The Man Race, race, class, class genre, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. Welcome back to CBS This Morning. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office says it's investigating a physical confrontation between a white woman and a black teenager caught on camera. Jazz musician Keon Harrell took this video in the lobby of a New York City hotel where he and his 14-year-old son were staying. It shows the woman tackling the teenager after accusing him of taking her cell phone, which he did not do. The confrontation is drawing comparisons to other recent false accusations against black people. Nikki Batiste is at the Arlo Hotel. Nikki, good morning. Adriana, good morning. The hotel says it did call the police after the incident about the woman's conduct. And the NYPD confirms Harold has filed a harassment complaint. The hotel also admits more could have been done to de-escalate the dispute. Are you kidding me? Musician Keon Harold says he and his son Keon Jr. had just exited the elevator when they were confronted by this unidentified woman in the hotel lobby. This lady was, you know, irate and 
you know, literally just suggested that my son had somehow acquired her cell phone, which is, you know, ridiculous. We literally never seen this lady. In the video, the woman continues to accuse the teen of having her iPhone, and a person who identifies themselves as the manager appears to approach the teen. I'm the manager of the hotel. I don't care. They never asked any question. They demanded his phone, which is ridiculous. My son is 14 years old. He has the right to, to have his phone, and he also has the right not to show it. Better get on. Let's go. As Harold and his son leave the lobby, the woman follows them. He says she then scratched him on his hand and tackled and grabbed his son. Please get my phone back. I can't. I cannot. Not have my phone. Get your Harold said he was told by the hotel that the woman's phone was returned by an Uber driver shortly afterward. Attorney Ben Crump, who is representing the family, is now calling on the Manhattan District Attorney to charge the woman with battery and assault. This culture of implicit bias that so many people have, it needs to stop. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Just seven months ago, this video of Amy Cooper calling 911 on birdwatcher Christian Cooper went viral, highlighting the issue of false accusations made against black people. Please send the cops immediately. Harold said his son is traumatized, but he shared the video to shed light on these incidents. We know the stories of so many other people wrongly accused so well. Um, so, you know, I feel like it just needs to be dealt with in this country so we can have a, a fair shot. In a statement, the Arlo Hotel said it was deeply disheartened about this incident of baseless accusation, prejudice, and assault against an innocent guest. The company says it's committed to making sure this never happens again at its hotels. Jerika, Nikki, thank you. To be In the 1980s, he was principal of Eastside High in Patterson, New Jersey, a school where crime and drug use were rampant. Early in his tenure, he expelled 300 students for misconduct and laid down the law for the rest of them. Motivation and test scores improved. The White House made a job offer in 1988, but Joe Clark declined a national job to stay at Eastside. His work inspired the 1989 film Lean on Me, starring Morgan Freeman as Joe Clark. I want the names of every hoodlum, drug dealer, and miscreant who's done nothing but take this place apart on my desk by noon today. This is an institution of learning, ladies and gentlemen. If you can't control it, how can you teach? Discipline is not the enemy of enthusiasm. Joined now by two of Joe Clark's former students, Thomas and Deborah McIntyre. They're married and join us now from their home in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. You're Thank welcome. you for having us. So many of us have seen that movie over the years. Did it capture Joe Clark, the man you knew? It did. It did. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Every time I hear that clip, it's just it just brings like a flashback to me because I was one of the 300. Well, could you please tell us this story? Because in the movie version of your life, there's the kind of naughty kid and the good kid. Tell us what happened, if you could. We definitely the product of both sides of the fence with Clark. I was doing the wrong things. I was hustling in the streets, the street life that I wasn't accustomed to by the housing development that I came from. And Clark just did not have it. 
Clark used the bullhorn to get your attention. He'll say, McIntyre, do the bullhorn, got my attention. Come here. Oh, boy, what's going on? I had to go to his office, and he, he gave me my report. He also said that I had to leave. Get stuff out of my locker. You're done. Deborah, your version. <laughs> um, I was one of the good kids, one of Mr. Clark's favorites. When Mr. Clark was there, I felt safe. So I, I did go to school. I did all that I could. Um, and then when I felt like I was not going to go on the right path, before I could even get off, Mr. Clark put me back on the right track. What, what difference did Joe Clark wind up making in your lives? He definitely showed me, you know, and taught me accountability and responsibility. Yeah, I must agree with the responsibility, the accountability. He kicked me out. And in his in the process of kicking me out, he said, you can always come back to me and talk to me. I'm going to still check on you. And you're not going to allow the excuses that are around you, no dad in the house, you're not going to allow that to deter you from your success. You have the ability, you're gifted. And although at a young age, I was very upset at him for kicking me out. Later on, I realized that, wow, don't let these excuses pull you down. You don't have a dad, that's fine. And that's what made him like a father figure. Wow. A father figure in a place that maybe sometimes it was hard to uh, find father figures. Definitely. And Mr. Clark, I believe, knew that. You know, when he came to school, he came knowing that he had to impart into those who did not have their fathers. And, you know, some didn't even have their mothers. Yeah. But he always stood firm and stood in a gap for whoever was missing. And I gather you two distinguished alums of Eastside are organizing a, uh, a tribute, a memorial for Joe Clark. Can you tell us a little bit about it? I never really got a chance to really thank him. And him to see me and Deborah together would have blew his mind. And I really wanted him to see that. I wanted him to be proud of us. And I didn't get a chance to do that. So I said, I believe we should just do a memorial and have the students all say what he meant to them just sending it off to heaven and saying, look at us. We are your product. You did not fail us. No matter if you kicked me out, you did not fail me. You bettered me. He's not here anymore to hear it, but his children are and his grandchildren are. And they need that at this time. I'm so happy about it. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm so yes. excited. Thomas and Deborah McIntyre from Virginia Beach talking about their great principal, Eddie Side and Patterson, Joe Clark. Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you for, Thank having, you for having, having us. When you're Deadbeat Black Fathers. Always got to remind folks of that one. Gus T. Renegade, context of white supremacy, first compensatory call in of 2021. Woof. Doesn't look any better than 2020. Uh, today's day, January 2, 2021. So I have been told our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, questions, observations, counter racist suggestions. The number 720 716 7300. The code 564 943 pound. 
Press star 61 if you would like to participate. We just heard Principal Joe Clark. The passing of Principal Clark. In addition to his passing. Adolfo Quiones. Uh, he was in the movie Breakin' and Breakin' to the Electric Boogaloo. We spent so much of 2020 talking about the Boogaloo, and then we had Dr. Kevorkian on the program to talk about uh, Breakin' to uh, Mr. Quiones. He was uh, ozone specifically uh, in the film, uh, attempting to get the white females uh, love interest uh, in the film. But he passed away this week as well at the age of uh, 65. So. Lots of uh, unfortunate, untimely passings too. 65 is, you know, kind of young in my opinion, why we should be motivated to solve this problem. Did test positive, uh, excuse me, he tested negative, tested negative for COVID-19, if that means anything, but he was reporting uh, flu-like symptoms. So lots of questions. Uh, many things to share. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Lots and lots to share. Uh, and we'll get to callers as well. Um, I'll start by just saying, you know, many of the folks that we esteem here or that many people esteem, Dr. Welsing. Dick Gregory, uh, these are folks who who frequently brag about the amount of time, energy they invest in checking out the news, whether it's watching news, listening to news programs, reading the newspaper, whatever it is, trying to get information about things that are happening. I think that is important. All of the folks who say reading the newspaper or checking out what's happening in the news, that's a bunch of foolishness. That's a waste of time. It's a lie. That is absurd. It's dangerous. Like I said, I sometimes have a difficult time distinguishing between the people who are just lazy and the people who take the position that, oh man, it's just a bunch of lies and useless to check out the news or hear what's going on. Just my view. Next, uh, the report I, that what I just shared with you came to mind repeatedly as I was hearing the news reports today. I was listening almost as though I didn't put this segment together. Uh, so the segment <clears throat> closer towards the end uh, where they're talking about Kian Harold Jr., uh, this 14 year old child. I call anybody if they're under 18 child, even I say that racist child. This is a child being assaulted over a phone. The first thing that came to mind is, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) I mean, I thought it was that black male, that toxic black male. You know, he'll strangle you. They talked about O.J. Simpson. He was in jail and the glove didn't fit because he was strengthening his fist muscles. You know, he'll strangle you with one pinky. You mean to tell me that a 22 year old white woman did a football tackle? Is that what you're ta- Did I miss that? A white woman and they got video of her doing a straight up dick buttkus linebacker. Pow, you going to give me my iPhone to a black male? With his black father present, I forgot this is not even like he's just, I got him by himself, you know, and I'm all doing it. No, 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 no. 
your black father's right there and I'm going to beat your son down and take my oh wait a minute the Uber driver just bought oh oh well uh this coon was going to take my phone and I stopped him just in case thank you Uber driver for bringing my phone back in front of his father that is blackmail privilege white woman does it better way better and then the audacity can you imagine if this was reversed I can't even begin this story if I try to imagine a black male tackling a 14 year old white teenage female like that I can't even begin that like at all so we'd have to switch this around a little bit like white mom uh, black male a 14 year old white child you falsely accuse him of taking your phone he tackles the child I mean I can't even compute that I felt like it would be straight mob violence like everybody in the hotel would have jumped in and beat that black male to death and bought that white child a new phone anyway many times during that segment in addition I thought Jesus like I can't even believe like I saw this report before and I can't even I guess I couldn't even comprehend like everything that happened because I looked at this before like this was not the the first time that I heard or or read about this incident Uh, to have this happen trying to think about this the other way around and then people tell you you got blackmail privilege and all that and then they don't even identify this white woman it wouldn't just be if this had been a black male who had done this or a black female or a black child who had done this. It could have been a 14 year old black child said, hey, that kid took my phone. Give it here. If he had done that. Oh, yeah. Police is going to be on and cracking. They killed a black teenager in I believe it was Wisconsin. I have to give you the name. They killed him for allegedly taking a bottle of orange juice. It wasn't even a security officer. It was just a random white person. We don't tolerate that type of African hooligan. They killed him on the spot. They don't even name this white woman, much less charge her. She does a she does a response article in the New York Post, which I do not deem as a trustworthy uh, publication. But she did an article in the New York Post. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It reads the woman who falsely accused a black jazz musician's teen son of stealing her cell phone in a Manhattan hotel has broken her silence, saying that she does worry about the fallout but maintains her allegation that she was assaulted during the brouhaha now that's interesting word choice right there I thought her allegation was that he stole the phone so is now the allegation that she was assaulted she continues the 22 year old woman spoke Tuesday to CNN about the viral video in which she's going which she's seen going off I am no fan of the New York Post on a 14 year old Keon Harold Jr. in the lobby of Soho's Arlo Hotel claiming that he swiped her iPhone. The woman whose name was withheld by CNN said that when she realized her phone was missing, she first demanded to see surveillance video from the hotel lobby. Pause right there. Now, I don't know. Uh, People that are present have misplaced a cell phone before I have uh, or anything a wallet right something of value do people like freely divulge 
their surveillance footage just because you have a suspicion unconfirmed unsubstantiated that someone here took your wallet phone purse whatever really white women do it better continuing she then asked everyone in the lobby to empty their pocket before settling on Keon Jr. as her suspect pause again now I mean are you an enforcement what what badge or no isn't that how I say it at the at the conclusion are you an enforcement everyone here stop right now what come on man who is even complying with this like are you serious continuing this is another one where you can have an exercise so if you're a black person male female child and you think you've lost your wallet and you hey 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 everyone right now Let's shake out your pants. Roll your socks down right now. Yeah. Uh, During a tussle not fully captured on the video, the elder Harold has said the woman scratched him and tackled the teen. I'm not going to read anymore. She goes on to talk about how she was also scratched. She's not a racist. Apparently, even the mayor of New York City, Cowbell, uh, has describe this as plain and simple racism and hoping that she gets charged again anyway uh, I am not a parent many many times I've said that on the program I'm not an attempted parent I have no idea I mean I guess you could beat this white woman down and then that would be two black people uh, who potentially would be going to jail or accused of something violating this white woman somehow wow I am not a parent staggeringly difficult job and even in the midst of the corona like how are we jumping on people in in COVID and everything and we're jumping on top of people and brawling for a phone like I've said repeatedly white people are very very dangerous I've said this year especially white people are very very dangerous this is what you have to have in mind when you go out in public just Things you can't even begin to prepare for. Sabrina Johnson talked about this because she was saying it was in the context. A parent went with a small child, like under six years of age. They went to, let's say, a store or whatever. And the mask issue, white woman there with no mask on, non-white people had their mask on, small child, everything masked up. Uh, And so the woman is there. She says, uh. Oh, you all got your mask on and everything, doing all that. She's trying to, to be safe. The woman leans over and coughs on the child. So now, they're not out cursing. Not out. She didn't say that they had on like MAGA paraphernalia or, you know, third term for Obama, something really incendiary to get people riled up. Just out trying to get groceries, stay safe, get away. Not out accosting people and what have you. And to have this happen or to have your son tackled, scratched by a white woman. White terrorist. Lots to consider. Lots to talk about with your offspring. Talk about that all the time, like regularly, particularly in with what's happening right now. It's just not time where you can just go out and just be having fun and not really paying attention to your surroundings and thinking it's a good time just for more reasons than we have time to listen list uh let's see speaking of lists so many things within the report to discuss 
they discussed the continent. They focused on the Democratic Republic of the Congo, but they were saying the entirety of Africa, so-called, missing out on the Rona vaccine for a while. And I thought, wow, now, it was like March, April, they were saying, well, we should do field tests. We should go over and do our experiments with the Rona vaccine over here on the continent. They were saying that. And now it's, I don't know, we'll get to y'all maybe later. Check us 2025 and we'll see about a vaccine for you all. Like, hmm. Like, just trying to learn, get more information. And again, they don't really have high rates of the Rona on the continent, save for South Africa. So, I mean, it's not like they would be first priority, as they say, uh, people who need the most help, get the most help. They do not need the most help as it relates to the Rona right now. So maybe as it should be Uh, within that segment, though, the PBS report, they talked to some of the folks who uh, expressed hesitancy about the vaccine, even if it does uh, arrive on the continent. No problem. There are lots of suspicion worldwide about all this. Uh, But they talked to people. And I mean, hey, victims guaranteed, qualified, whatever, take whatever stance you want. But to go talk to black people and the response is, I'm not worried about the Rona. It's in Jesus's hands. I am sure there are black people right here in Seattle, black people in Atlanta, black people in the Congo who have that view. Absolutely. Probably lots of black people. But well, number one the religion of white supremacy white people are most to blame for that for any black person in the world who has that view directly indirectly white people are to blame for that second <clears throat> I am also sure there are some black people in the Congo and elsewhere on the continent who have a reasoned opinion as to maybe we should have some hesitancy white people were just joking about experimenting with a vaccine on the continent. There's a long history of them experimenting with so-called HIV medications here because they have uh, lower medical standards in terms of having to do trials and get clearance and that type of thing. Long history. Deprovera, lots of other... Matter of fact, medical apartheid. The final chapter is not on the United States. It's about chemical and biological warfare in South Africa and specifically some of it even targeting... Uh, Madiba Nelson Mandela Nelson Mandela while he was still in greater confinement uh, confinement uh, and the entire group of non-white people uh, who are working to overthrow so-called apartheid trying to come up with ways of manipulating their behavior so that they wouldn't bite, fight back be less resistant last chapter of medical apartheid so it'd be lots of reasons logical scientific evidence-based reasons to be hesitant you don't talk to those people it's just I don't know Jesus is God oh I guess they did talk to one person who was a little suspicious but reasons other than Jesus has got it not worried about the Rona for me that sounds about the same if you're not worried about the Rona it's in Jesus's hands about the same uh, let's see long list there were a lot of reports on police killings of black people. And I've said for a long time, I'm not really that interested. Although some of those were in the sequence uh, from NPR where they were talking about uh, specifically about the not indicting the officers in the Tamir Rice case and 
wanting to charge the white officer, former officer Coy in uh, Ohio, talking about these specific uh, cases. I am generally not that interested in going over a whole lot of details. White people do this sort of thing and encourage this sort of behavior uh, on a regular basis. Uh, I even think it's a part of the trauma to just keep broadcasting and having all the dash cam footage and audio footage of all these grisly uh, attacks uh, and the protest and all the rest of it. Uh, if that sort of thing should happen to me, I would appreciate it if we do not have uh, any protests uh, out in the streets of Seattle or if I relocate or wherever it is. Uh, no, thank you. Like it's got to be other work, more important work to do uh, than just being out stomping in the streets and, you know, say his name, Gus T. Nah, nah. Thank you kindly. Let's get some work done. We do not need a protest. Uh, The segment on public transit we started with, I thought was so important for so many reasons. Uh, Just talking about uh, explanations, logical explanations for why non-white people, black people might be more susceptible to the Rona and all of that public transportation and or Access being denied, restricted around public transportation, retired firefighter just for workplace racism just hours ago said, man, make sure you do all the checks and everything on your transportation. It's about to be inclement weather. If it hasn't already snowing and all the rest of it, you can't be late. That'll be an excuse to fire you or deny you a promotion or whatever it is. And that is exactly what they talked about all throughout that segment, non-white people. And, oh, man, if they're going to have reduced services and is this going to be temporary and what sort of impact that workplace racism, that is exactly what we talk about. I know Mr. Fuller has talked about that also. And white people already knowing that ooh we, we can get rid of a whole lot of non-white people right there and can do it easy. Just say, hey, you've been late. I know the bus problem and everything, but we got to have folks who are reliable. Maybe you can, you know, get a car, get your finances together and get a better transportation or get a job that's closer to where you live, but have to let you go. Uh, let's end within that. They said lots of metaphors. They said Band-Aid. We don't want to invest in public transportation, but they gave exceptions one of the exceptions wasn't Atlanta, wasn't Chicago. It was the best plantation in the U.S. Seattle, one of the exceptions. Hey, we invest in public transportation. I told you they had public transportation was free for most of the year because of the Rona. So much was shut down. And I mean, they did have reduced service. Nobody was nowhere to go. So uh, but it was free. Um, I, I'm not even it might have included the ferry. I don't have white friends who live out on the island, but I think even the ferry because that's public transportation. I think even the ferry was uh, was free. But Seattle was on the list and they do have exemplary uh, public transportation in Seattle. It stands apart. I've been to Chicago, L.A., New York City, like pfft, no contest. Best plantation. Uh, let's see. Speaking of best plantation, they did not list Atlanta on cities that are, hey, we are proud and best public transportation is important. We wanted that they didn't list Atlanta there and they could have added to the white supremacy component because Atlanta is notorious and explicitly about inefficient public transportation as an act 
of white supremacy. We talked about it before on the program, Atlanta, where it never snows. I think in 2013 or so it did snow. Mayor Kareem Hunt was in office, black male, and it did snow. And they were saying, oh, man, because it doesn't snow there. They was, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And people are sliding everywhere. They don't have to uh, snow tires. They're not prepared for all that. What a great time to use the MARTA. Get on a little public transportation. But you can't do that because public transportation is horrible. Deliberately so. And in fact, they joke about it. Uh, it's MARTA. I forgot what the acronym is for. Metropolitan Atlanta Transportation something. Uh they racist at or the the racist renaming of that acronym is moving Africans rapidly through Atlanta. And it's for years, for years been known that and for years it's been terrible public transportation specifically because we don't want them Negros just going willy nilly all throughout our great city. No way. That's one component. And then when you hear about all the the havoc with the Rona and at the Cascade nursing facility and throughout, I thought even within that segment, they should have included Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, current mayor. And they even they fussed at Mayor Kareem Hunt. They tried to make it seem that the black mayor of Atlanta made it snow. Then they came around seven years later with Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. She had random white people calling and leaving her messages, calling her a nigger, threatening her whole family. She had the Rona. Her husband got the Rona. I think someone else in her immediate family, it might have been one of her offsprings. She was doing trying to manage all of that while being terrorized, having random white people saying, nigger, you are not going to tell us we got to wear a mask and all the rest of it. And fighting the governor, I forgot he was saying, yeah, nigga, you're not going to sit here and have a mask mandate. I've already said we're not doing mask mask mandates in the great state of Georgia. And you're not going to override what I say. Like she was having to navigate all of that uh, while trying to so-called be mayor of the city of Atlanta. (sighs) Victim, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. Uh, That should have been included within that report. The only Cascade facility with all these problems with the Rona, coincidentally, where the black people are. And no real explanation as to why is this the anomaly in such a bad way? And then the additional background information, how they just always get the bad services they show up this is before the zoom party days they show up in person for the company cookout and everybody else rolls up they got the pimped out ride they got the m uh the the mercedes van and the nice tinted windows roll royce and what they say we gotta roll up and and we got the leaking van and and the tire is a little bit flat and the paint is chipped off and the seat belt up like, whoa, whoa. And then we're so, whoa, what do you, what do you mean the Negro facility with the, with the broke down van has all the Rona cases? Like, yes, we're surprised. This is an accident. Yes. Mm. In Atlanta, where the CDC headquarters is. Yes. All of this is. Don't know how that bad luck they even said. I thought, my goodness, can you just say that in general? Like, this is just bad luck, maybe? The niggers always just get the bad luck. They piled up the metaphors within that report as well. They were saying that to be in that particular area 
of Atlanta that this was considered a badge of honor. They said you did have white people live there, but then they had white flight. That's another metaphor. Uh, the white people leaving the area. Uh, and they said for a while, this was the creme de la creme. I said, oh, my goodness, that's in the word guy. Like they were just piling up metaphors and metaphors and metaphors. Creme de la creme, even though that is the uh, French uh, pronunciation of the phrase cream of the crop, uh, but is in the word guide. Do not use this term. During the existence of white supremacy racism, the term cream of the crop may directly or indirectly cause some people to think, speak and or act as if that which is white cream like in appearance is better or best, particularly when the cream like appearance is applied to a person. When this happens, such thought speech and or action helps promote ideas and practices that help to support white supremacy racism creme de la creme and you can you can maybe even rewind back was it being used in the manner that he describes because it seems like it had a high value this area because of the presence of white people or their former presence it was something to brag about words are important uh let's see and they continued it wasn't just they got the the old dilapidated van right he said they said that uh the hurricane was coming through and they said oh man maybe maybe we get a generator ah, get out of here get out of here didn't hurricane katrina just happen? they said this was like 2013 like didn't we just go through hurricane katrina like we don't want that to be us they had nursing facilities in the gulf region and all that like come on man ah, get out of here we got you that man get out of here you don't get a generator. You have elderly black patients with glow sticks after the electricity goes out. Like, and I'm supposed to be surprised that they have the Rona or diabetes or anything else. We don't get a generator. We got to pretend we got to pretend we're at Magic City. Yeah. I would have died man somebody had the audacity I moved from Atlanta to Seattle via Las Vegas someone had the audacity to ask me in my last couple of days why don't you stay it's great down here are you absurd absurd brain damage is rampant in the great ATL Uh, let's see speaking of metaphors they said suspected white terrorist Anthony Quinn Warner may have had a bone to pick with AT&T in Nashville. I don't even know what that means. That's one you can think also. Now, if that had been a black person, imagine anybody. Imagine Al Sharpton accused of detonating a bomb anywhere in Nashville or wherever else. Maybe Al Sharpton had a bone to pick with what I think they would use much harsher language in fact let it have been a Muslim who had done that and I guarantee you it would not have been oh maybe he had a bone to pick here in Graceland come on 
Anthony Quinn Warner, they said the metaphor, they just piled him up. They said, man, maybe we, maybe somebody dropped the ball on this one. What do you mean drop the ball? <laughs> like you all knew about this fella. I was saying they knew about him a year ago. I'm not even being accurate. You knew about him 16 months in advance. And I mean, exact detail. This fella is building bombs. You don't even follow up on the investigation. A black teen is accused of stealing a phone. He's tackled in public. The manager's got it. Give us your phone, young man. What are you doing? We saw you. Like, you can't even follow up. I think he might be building explosives. Eh, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We got just getting these getting these cell phone reports, man. We gotta gotta check on these teens stealing these phones, man. We we'll, we'll get to the bomb later. Sixteen months later, we dropped the ball. Mm-hmm. Let's see. The oh, so many more. I'll pause right there just to make sure folks have an opportunity to chat it up. I took so many notes. It was like I had not heard these clips before. I guess the last thing I'll get in, we should be here on uh, Wednesday. We will have two OJ days this week. We have the book club, Jeff Tubin, Thursday, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Wednesday, uh, Stephen Singular should be here. He is a white man. He wrote the book Legacy of Deception, uh, which is all about the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, he cont- actually he contacted both the prosecution and the defense during the trial to share information he received about what was happening. Uh, he was rebuffed basically by the prosecution. The defense was more receptive. He had a number of meetings with the defense uh, during the trial, sharing information with them about things he was hearing about Mark Furman and him possibly having planted this blood and uh, some other things. But he wrote a book about his uh, experience. Uh, one thing I can two two quick things I can tell you. Uh, he talks about, uh, as do many, if not most of the white people whose books I've read, who at some point came to believe that O.J. Simpson is innocent of these murders He said that at some point when he was perhaps thinking that O.J. Simpson did commit these crimes, which I did, too, uh, he says he was listening to talk radio and he was listening to Opie and Andy. We've done shows on them and Howard Stern and how they daily uh, just mocked O.J. Simpson. And of course, he did it in the most crude and racist fashion. And he said, as he started to get more information about this Mark Furman guy and what was happening, he said it started. He he couldn't even listen to this content anymore because he was like, wow, like, how is this impacting what everybody else thinks about the trial and why are they even doing this and blah, blah, blah and all the rest of it. But that's one white talk, racist white talk radio and the enormous influence. We've talked about that before. There's a reason Howard Stern has made millions and probably billions all these years and the Opie and Anthony show and all that we talked about and done programs about that before. But those guys did enormous work during the Simpson trial. Like some of their stuff is archived. Like I'll have to share some of that in the book club as he, as we go. But he talked about that. Stephen singular. He talks about that in his book. That's one, two. Uh, he, He says that there are few things that bumped the OJ Simpson from being top coverage during that like year and a half span. 
One of the things was the Oklahoma City bombing, Timothy McVeigh, 1995. And he says, I wasn't, didn't really think too much about the details of it and everything. But he said, the more he got into it, oh, this guy's reading the Turner Diaries. We read on the book club. Wow, the Turner Diaries is all about blowing up buildings and no niggers having sex with white women. And maybe they should be killed if they are putting their hands on a white woman. Like, oh, how interesting. And then this guy's hanging out in Idaho and hanging around the Waco, Texas thing. Like, oh, okay. And he says, wait a minute. Timothy McVeigh is hanging out in Idaho and probably doesn't like black guys having sex with white women. Mark Furman buys retirement property in Idaho and also seems to not like black males having sex with white women. Maybe these guys know each other or even hanging out in the same circle. I had not thought about connecting those two incidents, but he also talks about that in the book. Uh, We'll chat it up this Wednesday, 5 p.m. or excuse me, it's 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific for Wednesday. Stephen Singular, white man talking about the OJ and a white man I hadn't even heard of uh, who was talking to the defense and giving them information about, you know, you better look into that dastardly Mark Furman dude and. You know, check out that blood evidence as well. Something seems a little awry about what's happening here. Fascinating material. We will continue. Uh, Lastly, I'll say uh, I've said it repeatedly. The metaphors be precise, exact with what we are saying. Racists will regularly employ metaphors. Anthony Quinn isn't a white white terrorist. He had a bone to pick. They will use metaphors to practice racism. Uh, We have been exposed to this misconduct for centuries. Uh, If we could be specific, direct about what we want to say, that would be super appreciated. If you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, observations, that would be excellent. Make sure everybody has at least one chance to speak. Uh, Also, if you are in a noisy environment, if you could use your mute button, uh, make sure that we don't have to compete with any background noise. Uh, Just unmute when you're ready to talk then you can mute yourself again that would be super appreciated number again is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate let's see first few folks uh, who dialed in. If you have thoughts, observations to share, line should be open. Proceed. Hi, Gus. Greetings, be in Toronto. Greetings to you, callers and listeners. Um, thank you so much for um, putting the clips together um, in tonight's broadcast and for your insight. Um, for the uh, white woman or female uh, that uh, terrorized the 14-year-old and his father. Um, Another thing to note is that the father and the son were guests at the hotel, at the facilities, and she was not a guest. Um, So it was very interesting that her being a non-guest was able to assert such authority into demanding um, uh, searches of um, of uh, people's property 
uh, for her phone and then um, uh, uh, attacking the 14-year-old uh, boy and his, uh, and his father, um, along with accusations, false accusations towards them. What was also interesting was that management of the hotel uh, actually sided with her and um, had also asked the 14-year-old to hand over the phone so she can look at it. Um, and the father said no, and rightly so, because that's his son's property. Um, and she has she's not enforcement, nor is management. Um, and um, it was also interesting that management didn't contact police. Um, now, knowing how police uh, tends to respond, uh, it, it could have uh, it could have gotten worse in in terms of um, the the young boy and his father could have gotten um, uh, very hurt or worse uh, murdered. Um, the other uh, way it could have ha- happened as well, where the uh, white female could have gotten uh, arrested. Um, but it was interesting that the police was not called on this white woman, um, despite the fact that she had, uh, committed assault and battery and made false allegations. Um, the next thing to note is it's quite interesting, um, how, uh, white people seem to avert consequences um, either through white propaganda or white interference um, that seems to uh, deliver them from from natural consequences so um, such as this uh, this guy who apparently uh, bombed uh, the building and um, the propaganda is that he had a Bone to pick. Um, it's absolutely disgusting um, that they they trivialize and minimize it down to that when clearly his actions were terroristic, um, as you've mentioned, and um, and I completely agree. So it's 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 just it's it's rather fascinating that no matter how heinous the crime. Um, somehow the the propaganda is that um, the heinous actions are immediately trivialized or it becomes as if the white person is innocent and didn't know what they were doing or some kind of mental illness or some kind of drug use, something that was completely out of their control when we all know full and well that it was within their control and that they chose to do it. And then, you know, leave it up to the criminal justice system uh, or maybe another fellow white person that is just going to uh, come in and interfere so that that white person who committed the act does not get the consequences that they need and um, and deserve. And um, it just goes back to that whole equation of um, desire, opportunity and means by eliminating one or all three of them will hopefully reduce um, the activities of these white people um, uh, you know, doing these heinous things. Um, And then the third is about the vaccine. 
um, just urging um, callers, listeners, yourself, um, and I'll be doing the same to continue to research on on the vaccines and um, and definitely inquire with medical practitioners uh, about um, what it will do to the body. Uh, in fact, it would be quite interesting to have a medical practitioner um, to to answer uh, these types of questions. Um, and thank you. I leave the line. Much obliged, BN. Toronto, appreciate the uh, updates. That does sound constructive just to be able to ask some questions and just still learning uh, about the whole vaccine and the Rona so we can try to make best decisions possible for ourselves and family members. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share, you should be with us. Hello. Uh, greetings, Irie, Louisiana. Okay. How you doing? I know, right, Corey, that I hope the new year is going okay for you so far. And I hope it's going okay for everyone else, you know, as best as possible under conditions. Um, I wasn't going to talk about it, the the young man that was tackled, but I want to say this. If anybody in in New York knows this man and listens to this uh, program, I would advocate that he be told to put a report in with child services for child abuse, if anything, if they're not going to charge her. Because at at minimum, from what I saw, it was child abuse. (laughs) And she's unsafe around children. Um, They may or may not find find it to be a credible allegation, but you know, that might hold her up for a while, depending on what she does, especially if she works with kids, because unfortunately, you have to hit, that's a metaphor, you have to affect white people's money in order for them to um, start to become what they say is accountable. There won't be remorse, but at least there'd, there'd be, there would be some type of adverse uh, effect for some time, um, possibly with that reporting. Um, the whole time during um, the, the segment, I thought about a quote I heard from a song by Michelle Indigo Cello on her album, I think it's uh, Cookie, an anthology. Um, and the song, unfortunately, is, is called Dead Nigga Boulevard. But at the end of it, there's a quote by a man that I cannot find um, a victim of racism. And he says, when you put property rights ahead of human rights, you tamper with nature because property rights are controlled by man and human rights are controlled by nature. Property rights are controlled by white people. And obviously they don't respect nature. So we can't expect them we can't expect them to do anything else, um, which, you know, this, again, it was an overlay to everything I heard. I was interested in the um, transportation uh, situation in New Orleans, considering I don't 
ride the bus anymore. I have a vehicle. I've had it for uh, a vehicle for some time. Um, but I did ride the bus, and, you know, sometimes it was on time, sometimes it wasn't, but after the hurricane, it got real bad. But then um, after gentrification, it got really good around what they call the C- the CBD, the Central Business District. So if you live around there, which also offshoots to what they call the Garden District, you know, who lives there, um, uptown New Orleans, you can get around pretty easily. They expanded like the streetcar lines and everything, but for everyone else, it sucks. Well, it's bad. Excuse me, and I found an article from NOLA.com, and there was a caption where uh, it said the young man that lives in Littlewood, um, which is New Orleans East, mostly black, uh, well, I would say all black, um, he has to get on the bus two hours uh, ahead of his work schedule to make it to work um, in the CBD area um, from where he lives in New Orleans East. And then it says that, um, where was it? it? It said basically transportation uh, to outlying parishes is also very bad. So the outlying parishes, parishes are white, St. Tammany, St. Bernard, Jefferson Parish. I, I suspect it's after Jefferson Davis. Um, and there's two of those, uh, West Jeff and East Jeff. They don't want they don't want people to access those areas easily if they're on the bus because you're probably black. Um, the next thing about Miss Ernestine Western Power to her, um, and nursing homes and if if nursing homes are run anything like what I experienced working at a mental health facility with with developmentally disabled people, and these people were mostly, I would say if I had to guess, 92% of the residents there are white. So these are still white people, but developmentally disabled. They They got neglected all the time by medical staff. And there was one incident that stands out to me so, so much. Um, a nonverbal white female um, would do self-abuse, um, bite herself and hit herself when she was in pain and, you know, distress otherwise. And she had several bad molars in the back of her mouth that um, needed to be addressed. And I would tell the nurse every time, XYZ patient, is in pain. She's screaming that night. She's hitting herself. And she hit herself in the mouth where the infection was so much that the side of her face swole up. And I would be countered by this particular white nurse as though I was, I, I, I didn't know what I was talking about. So what I had to do was literally write an incident report and an injury report every time I went to work. And because I did that, the paperwork stacked up so much and they had, you know, there's accountability to other state agencies that see these incident and injury reports that they had to do something after a while. And so with nursing homes, it's like a person would have to do the same thing. They would have to literally write a report. I saw my grandmother stumbling today, uh, 
turn that into the the nursing home and then report it to the agency that's going to possibly, hopefully, do something about it because nobody wants their license, you know, to make money so-called caring for people revoked with too many incident reports. It's not good enough to say, can you please check on us? It's just not. And you, you have to constantly be present. Otherwise, your family member is going to be abused and neglected. I've seen this with my own eyes. It's really sad. Um, and that whole situation sad. They may not be sharing, as they say, budgets among the nursing homes, but obviously one nursing home is getting less money than others. Okay, and so to the next thing about Joe Clark, I have a rhetorical question, but still this is a question I have. How can you be a father to a kid you kick out? I don't I don't know how that happened. You kicked them out. There was no further interaction. There was no diversion program in the school for the troubled kids. There wasn't a talk about, okay, well, why are you getting in trouble? Or, for instance, what are you interested in that would keep you uh, uh, attentive and in a positive mindset so you're not in trouble here anymore? No, he was summarily dismissed. So I feel like that man probably owes um, his positive outcome to maybe some other gentlemen that were in his life more than Mr. Clark. And I just heard Black Miss Andre because... The black female was a good student. She was uh, nurtured and maybe even coddled a little bit. And the black male was just discarded. And uh, Gus, um, as far as updates for next week, uh, Kenosha County or City Council released a news release saying that come Monday, they will announce whether or not the officers are going to be are the officers going to be charged for the shooting of Jacob Blake, who is um, who was mortally wounded by that police officer? And because of whatever they're going to announce, they're expecting civil unrest in the area that may last uh, as long as they said eight days. And so there's that. Um, whew, the last thing I want to say is. Um, I found out about your program, Gus, from another podcast that I was listening to before in 2017 called Champagne Sharp. And it's an all-black panel. Um, like, sometimes it's three black men and a black female. They, You know, it varies, but they talk about a lot of stuff like trauma and childhood. They talk about contemporary things like social media and and entertainment and, and racism and, you know, within it as well. But, and, you know, in general too, but the um, host T is to me, I think he's pretty codified. He quotes Mr. Fuller often and he, in, he mentioned your show and that's how I found out about it. And the first show I listened to was the show with the creator of the matrix. So um, just wanted to let you know, maybe y'all can chop it up or something and, you know, just share some input about y'all experiences in, in this particular field of um, of work. But, yeah, that's how I found out about your show and want to share that with you and other people. It's a good show to listen to. And, uh, wow, I'm confounded by everything I heard. I'm probably going to 
it's probably going to tune out after this, um, after I end my turn. So I end my turn. Y'all be safe. Uh, eat right. Drink water. And I don't know, man, just minimize contact. Y'all have a good night. Much obliged, uh, Irie N. Louisiana. Uh, glad somebody had something uh, constructive or found something constructive uh, in the cows. Appreciate uh, them for sharing the content. We'll uh, check it out. See if see if we have any views to swap up. Um, some of the reports were kind of rough this week. That's why I said I was hearing them like I hadn't even heard them before myself with uh, what was happening with the young uh, teenager in New York, 14 year old. Great tip to encourage his, I guess, family or his father to uh, pursue child abuse charges uh, against this white woman. I think that's the same model, I guess, that Mr. Fuller recommends in terms of uh, making the business of white supremacy, uh, making it more expensive for them to practice racism. So if that takes up time and energy with you having to deal with some sort of uh, child abuse investigation and that sort of thing, you have to take time away from work and go through all Bravo, Bravo, even if they don't unfound it. And, you know, you got video. So, I mean, hey, maybe maybe they do find it great. That means maybe she get disqualified for jobs and, you know, all the rest of it. Uh, also, the segment they talked about the organ uh, transplant organizations, organ procurement organizations, OPOs, uh, as they uh, term them with the acronym. Uh, but they were saying that depending on where you live in the U.S., you might have better options. And they said, so if you live in Appalachia, uh, where you have people who die from like car accidents and goofy things like that, you can get organ transplants there. Whereas you live out here, West Coast, they said California and the such, you don't have that sort of thing. So you don't get as many organs uh, to pick from. And I thought, wow, now that is that is interesting. Uh, we've talked about uh, organ transplants before. It's a big section in medical apartheid on that. We had uh, Dr. Vanessa Grubbs on the program a couple of times now. Uh, she was with us uh, even a few months back talking about COVID's impact on uh, kidney health. But and we also with her talked about racism in organ transplants, who gets access to them and organ harvesting, all of that. Talked about all those details. Uh, but even within that segment uh, that we heard today, uh, they said that the Trump administration, they have these proposals to try to see if we can have more uniform uh, regulations uh, and, and to have uh, more uh, accountable record keeping for how we're procuring these organs. Right. Uh, and they said, well, I don't know, switching it up and doing this w- new format, it's going to be like a Hunger Games scenario. Metaphor. I have no idea what that means. I've seen the Hunger Games. Actually, I was just thinking about that uh, in connection to Elliot Roger. We talked about that extensively, but I don't even. Uh, I mean, are they going to be killing people? Right. Is this going to be like other uh, organ procurement organizations are they going to be like in combat with other agencies and and seeing if they can acquire them so that I mean I, I would need somebody to even break it down to me like what does that mean like they're killing people it's like active competition killing one another like is that I don't I don't even understand metaphors can cause a lot of confusion but 
yeah, I do think that's worthy of being paid attention to, especially within the Rona reports we've heard repeatedly. We don't know. This might have some sort of talking about these uh, coronavirus infections. They might have some sort of long term impact on organ health, kidney health. We already talked about that. I think Scarface uh, talked about that, did a whole big interview about that, saying that he was having kidney failure after his uh, coronavirus infection. So lots to process and think about the new regulations on organ transplants. Uh, We should be paying attention to that as well. Uh, Let's see. Number 720-716-7300, decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the callers and listeners. Um, uh, hope everybody's safe and uh, doing well and got through the uh, horror days that recently just passed. Um, a few things. One of the things was uh, the retirement homes. It was, it was very earlier on that I started realizing that there was some um, serious issues in the homes, mainly um, due to racism, white supremacy, as one of the home care, home care providing uh, locations that one of my friends, uh, my mother's friend used to stay at um, was just kind of dilapidated, uh, run down. And we were trying, my mother was trying to get her daughter to take her out of the actual um, home care facility. Um, unfortunately, at the time, there were things going on that didn't facilitate that, and um, she she um, passed uh, very soon after. Uh, my mother, therefore, didn't allow my grandmother to actually go into any kind of home care facility. She just stayed with us, um, with family, until she passed, because once she saw the implications of that, she realized that there's, there's no way that she would even last in, in those environments. But that was something that really struck a chord um, Calling the metaphor, but um, that was something that really um, brought back that um, that decision my mother made. Um, another thing is uh, my son. We had a long discussion with him in regards to racism, white supremacy this evening. Um, we didn't bring up the incident that occurred with the with the young boy, but brought up the fact that unfortunately, due to current circumstances, he he has to understand the position that he's in and that your, his ability to work and maintain his, his um, learning throughout his life is extremely important and could actually help him live longer and healthier. Um, and as well as, you know, watching as well as being active um, because due to Corona and a lot of the, I'm here in New York city, He's not able to go outside and meet up with his friends the same way, no high school environment for him. So it's been reaching a stage where we have been watching him and noticed that he has a little bit bits of depression where he would go into his room and kind of tune out. And uh, we've been constantly trying to communicate with him to make sure that we keep him involved um, with activities as going outside. And even if we watch a movie, it's something constructive that we can talk about during and after. Um, but that's just something I think for parents to just bear in mind to just watch your children, watch your offspring and make sure that they're not falling into these tailspins of, of uh, depression at, at times. Because we are, I'm going to look to see if he may keep an eye on him to see if he may need any more attention. Um, 
another thing is people reaching out all of a sudden in the, this new year. I recently had a cousin that is in a quote unquote tragic arrangement and she was asking questions as to why black people are in the position they're in. Um, I asked the questions back, but I think she already had decisions made up in her, <laughs> decisions made up in her mind. Yeah, rightfully so. Decisions in her mind made up as to what was going on and why black people were in this position, and it was no fault of anybody else but black people. Um, so I didn't go further. I just forwarded her books. Um, gave her information and said, we'll talk whenever, you know, but it's a very difficult conversation because of her situation and hearing her speak and ask the question as to why black men are killing black women. Let me know that whatever she's taking in as far as media and information <laughs> is just so grossly off and wrong. Um, and then another person reaching out on a health note, this was something I thought was very, very important as well. A friend of mine has diabetes. Um, I grew up together with, um, played on the same basketball team. The guy was healthy as you name it. And um, now he's at a point where he's starting to lose a little bit of feeling in his feet. And um, he confided me with, in, in, with this. And I told him, um, you know, he knows what I do. He knows I, I cycle, I, I do activities and try to get out with my son and, and, and my, my partner, she, she rides with us as well. So I try to point him to Dr. Ruby Nathan so he could possibly change his eating habits. But one of the things that I, I, I think this is something that I, uh, hopefully other callers can, you know, chime in on and if they have the same issue, because I think we all do to some degree and we work on it, which is, even though he knows the food is bad for him, even though he knows it's wrong, he still has a, 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 a deficiency somewhere where he just keeps going back to it, even though he knows it's wrong. And I think what I pointed out to him is that he needs to change his relationship with food and realize what it's actually be supposed to do for you. But then also you have to change your diet. And again, I pointed him to Dr. Ruby Lathan and I'm letting him look at her page and see if we see something that may be constructive. But if anybody else has any kind of um, information on any doctors or anything like that in the New York City area, uh, preferably Brooklyn or Queens or Manhattan even, that would possibly help, um, that would be extremely constructive. I'm just looking to try to help him out um, with as much resources as I can. Uh, but again, I, I do think you may need to see a psychiatrist as well or, or some therapy in regards to deal with why he has that relationship with food. Um, but with that said, um, all in all, my household is healthy. Hopefully going into New Year, everybody, please stay safe, stay sharp, and um, keep growing. Thank you. I'll be my line. Much obliged, sir. Uh, I guess if folks have any medical information, resources, or uh, medical professionals that you would recommend uh, in the New York area that would be great uh, and then uh, the food the food choices so many of the edible items that are marketed they are addictive you know they've got all those chemicals and everything Dr. Lathan uh, talked about that probably almost every time she's been a guest on this program and other platforms as well um, so, I mean, there's a reason, you know, like for your friend and for so many other folks, 
it's hard, you know, to, to make those changes, especially if you aren't like a competent, uh, competent cook, you know, you're not, uh, if you're not someone who's doing a lot of cooking anyway, to make like sweeping changes in your diet. So now you're preparing a lot of vegetables or preparing foods in different ways and cooking with different types of foods. It can be kind of intimidating, uh, especially if you don't do a whole lot of cooking anyway, you just get a lot of, uh, prepared foods and, uh, prepackaged, uh, foods, or you're just eating out fast food, that type of thing, uh, which Gus T did a lot of that myself. Um, but it, I mean, a lot of stuff is so addictive that it can be really hard to, change those habits uh, and to start picking up different things to even start shopping differently because it might mean that you have to go to a different uh, grocery store uh, and just have a a totally different way of thinking like you said about your relationship to food and all of that so it can be written especially the longer you wait like woof that talk so much like those that's why we did that whole program about getting your children to not eat mcdonald's uh so many of those uh relationships to food and preferences what you get a hankering for wanting to eat so much of that starts at a young age and or in the womb so you wait until 40 50 60 to start saying, Ooh, I want to try to make some change. Hey, even for some folks at 25, it can be hard to, Ooh, I've been eating Big Macs for 25 years. Like, Ooh, I've been eating Cheetos for 25 years. It's hard to let it go. Like, yes. By design, hard to put it down by design. Yes. Bravo for helping out though. Uh, folks have other resources. Please, uh, please share. Let's see. Uh, number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in, we have about... Mm, 30 minutes, basically, uh, left in the broadcast. If you have other questions, observations, thoughts, uh, do not lollygag. Wait till the last five minutes. Go ahead and get a hand up if you have thoughts to share. Hi, Gus. Be in Toronto. Hi. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't have uh, information on a medical practitioner uh, for the New York area, but I do have another aspect that can be taken into consideration um, for the, the gentleman's friend who um, is seeking a, a healthier lifestyle um, and a healthier connection with food, and that's uh, CBT. The acronym of CBT is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and um, uh, that is sometimes um, added uh within the weight management programs so that it helps to um, understand the actions um, and behaviors and the emotions behind why um, an individual does what they do. Um, So there is the chemical uh, dependency um, based on the preservatives and ingredients, um, primarily sugar, that is used into the foods. And then um, there's also the um, the uh, psychological aspect of it, 
that is also tackled as well. So um, if looking into a weight management program or a nutritional program, um, ensure that there is a CBT component uh, as well. Thanks so much. Much obliged be in Toronto. Absolutely. Dr. Welsing talked about that quite a bit. They do all that. Imagine you're an attempted parent guest at the hotel and some random hooligan white terrorist who doesn't even stay there tackles your offspring scratches you in the process all these false allegations and everything one result of that might be he said uh, my son's been traumatized by all this who wouldn't be I was traumatized just hearing about it reading about it one result of that could be for either the uh, attempted father or the offspring or both Uh, You stay in the house and just, you know, eat bad food. You know, I feel bad. I don't want to go outside. Uh, I'm jumpy. I'm nervous. Uh, I'm just, you know, going to try and eat something to make me feel better. I'll get some ice cream, you know, I'll get It's holiday too. So yeah, I can get ice cream. It'll be cakes and you know, all of that type of thing really easy. And that happens to a lot of victims of racism. Uh, let's see other folks who Pam Pamela Evans Harris she talked about that Uh, we talked about it on the program she wrote about that as well lots of black people have talked about that uh, over the years other folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open Hello, guys. Uh, uh, Irie? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's one thing I forgot to say. Uh, the the report with the guy with the um, the terrorist, him, and they when they used the metaphor that they dropped the ball, I was just thinking um, if they were going to use the metaphor, shouldn't they have said, well, they dropped the bomb, and that's it. I promise. That's all I have to say. Thanks. Poor job investigating. Like, make it plain. No follow-up at all. Like, you don't even get suspicious. Not even just, you know, he's acting a little strange or, you know, he was rambling about AT&T and 5G. Like, no. Direct. He's making bombs. Anthony Quinn Warner and Eh, eh. I don't know. We'll go check out the Peyton Manning statue and then we'll get back to checking out this Warner guy. I don't think they would have behaved that way if it had been a black. If Anthony Quinn Werner had been a black person, I think we would have had a much quieter Christmas morning. I could be totally wrong. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up. May I be heard? Greetings, Mr. Blue. I think also in the New York area. Yes, but um, I heard a um, a female, so ladies first, please. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, That's okay. I yield. I've I've already spoken. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Greetings to 
everyone, greetings, guests. Um, as far as New York and maybe some resources for that man um, who was talking about changing his, um, helping to change his um, family members' way of thinking about food, um, from the cows, um, Tracy Lynn McWhiter, um, by Any Greens Necessary. I have, um, not only do I own the book and have sent the book to um, other non-white black people and friends and family, um, the book is only um, no more than $20. You can get it off of her website, um, becoming a member, and um, subscribing to her website where she does have uh, um, recipes, um, PDFs, some recipes. The book really changed um, the way that I think about how she approached thinking about food and um, breaking down um, all different types of food from pork to chicken, um, eggs, milk, um, how things are processed. She really goes in-depth. And when I do have moments of weakness, I go back to that book by Any Greens Necessary and reread it as I'm doing right now to um, regain more information and remind myself of why thinking about food and the way I approach thinking about food and preparing food and recipes um, is very important, and it's a really great resource. And um, that's what I can do to help. Um, talking about thinking about um, the man, the uh, bomber in Nashville. I see that there's always a pattern. Um, I remember that story about a young teenage um, white female in George, I believe, who was planning to stab um, a lot of um, non-white black people at a church. In fact, and she'd written things down, and um, uh, people had gotten people had gotten wind of it, classmates. And um, things are never taken that serious, um, even with um, Dylan Storm Roof, that his friends had known that he was planning on um, committing some type of harm and terrorizing non-white black people. And yet again, this is another case where um, a white male was reported of making a bomb uh, from his, his partner, and um, it was totally ignored. So I always find that disturbing when we know that if it was any person, non-white black person, non-white person in general, that those allegations, um, Breonna Taylor, as an example, there was no evidence of her doing anything, just that the police had heard from a third party that she that there was possibly drugs coming out of this particular apartment. And they went in with guns blazing. So it's interesting. And um, business as usual, how they uh, treat white suspects as compared to non-white suspects. And um, I hope everyone is safe, stay healthy. Um, thank you, Gus. Always instructive. I've been listening since Thursday, but I've been a spectator. I love the compensatory call-in. It's nice to call in and um, thought I could help with um, requesting by any means necessary. It's a great book. Thank you, and I'll meet my line. Much much obliged, uh, Mr. Blue, Tracy Lynn McWhorter, guest on the program a few years back. Great information. As he said, recipes, you can check out our website. She has great uh, recipes. Uh, And in terms of changing the way, I think that was how our caller phrased it before, in terms of changing the way that we think about food, our relationship to food, like she does a lot of great work talking about her own process uh, in terms of how she started to kind of rethink what does it mean when we sit down with that fork or a chopstick, whatever, sit down at mealtime 
what does that mean? What is this time supposed to be about? And what does it really mean to nourish our bodies by any greens necessary? And I think she has other books too. Uh, Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yes. Good evening. Good evening to all the callers. Um, Happy New Year to everyone. Um, 2020, the year of propaganda and our actual genesis. Um, Depending on what happens Wednesday, uh, if it's contingent, 2021 could be more memorable than 2020. Um, I would just tell black people, stay away from crowds. Um, The transit corporations getting money. um, Unfortunately, the transit jobs are just not going to be around in the next five to 10 years. And um, it's sad, but um, as in many Asian countries, including European countries, um, trains, buses, rails, trams, they don't have any conductors nor operators. They operate um, pretty much on their own. And um, New York and other cities have been invested in that technology. Um, you don't even pay going to the token clerk booth no more. You had a machine that you would use, and now you just put your phone on the thing, and it opens up the turnstile. So if you have a problem paying, it's with your bank. It's not with a teller, so that job is going to be obsolete. Um, they put the bus drivers in plexiglass booths about two years ago, so you can't speak with them or interact with them or engage with them. So and right then when I saw that, so it just preparing people for when that person is not there anymore, they're not even going to notice, you know, it just won't be someone there. Just the, the bus, the drive itself. Um, and also lastly, the promoting of the sharing, the bike, bicycle sharing, electric bike sharing, electric scooter sharing, kick scooter sharing, all of these things that's just pops like, you know, I walk outside and it's 10 scooters in front of my building, you know, that wasn't there yesterday. And, you know, people jump on them and put their phone up to them and unlock them all to eliminate uh, certain aspects of the mass transit we use now. Um, yeah, well, what happened to the police defunding? Um, that was the genius idea white people promoted all summer, and black politicians promised black people all summer as they encouraged protesting and civil unrest. Um, Shootings in New York City up 97% from last year, um, up to 1,500 shootings almost. Um, Murders up 45%. As I reported all summer, total lawlessness, police presence minimal, Everyone wearing a mask, a recipe for anti-blackness. And due to the technology, the good thing is white people have all of this on camera. So we could watch the tapes of masked black people shooting other masked black people. It's just, um, you know, defunding the police. I just thought that was the dumbest thing I ever heard when I heard it. Um, Excellent job, you could say, I guess, by the FBI. Within 24 hours, were able to extract DNA from an explosion scene and match it to someone that they weren't even really tracking. Um, a white suicide bomber without a racist agenda. Man, glad. Um, <laughs> I hope they keep it that way. Keep blowing up AT&T and Verizon and stuff. Um, I think I heard a black male say um, in one of the clips, and I could be wrong, Gus, 
that um, and it seemed like he was comparing middle class blacks to lower class blacks, and he was saying middle class blacks transcended racism. Is that true, Gus? Is that what I heard, or did I misinterpret that? I do not think he said that. Uh, I believe that was Andre Perry uh, in the segment where he was talking about uh, COVID-19 is really bad in Atlanta and in all parts of Atlanta. Uh, He was saying that uh, it's bad in areas where you have so-called lower class black people, middle class black people. I think he was saying that racism transcends uh, so-called class. Perfect. Okay. I was like, oh, we got our first Isabella back on Wilkinson victim. Um, but yeah, okay. Glad I'm glad I didn't hear what I thought I heard. Um, in the clip, Dr. Moore said um if she was black, she would have gotten better treatment for COVID nineteen. Um she was denied pain treatment. Um I didn't know they gave pain treatment for flu or pneumonia symptoms, so I that's interesting. Um you know, I, I didn't know they were giving people um, pain medication, opioids for COVID. Um, that could cause a big problem afterwards. Um, African nations' priorities, to me, are not in line with reality. Um, they want to buy an expensive vaccine for a population of 85 million. And only 595 people have died from the coronavirus. I looked it up. Like wow, seven out of one every one million people. Uh, instead of investing this money in a power grid, because they said they didn't have power, um, the vaccine they're giving out has to be shelved at negative thirty-six to negative forty-eight degrees. How are they going to even store this vaccine with no power? You know, it, it just seems like um, just a bad idea. Um, the black male attacked by the white woman. Terrible experience. Um, I swear that they're suing the hotel. Uh, if this was pre-COVID, the city and the city was open and vibrant, this black male accused of robbery by a white female would have probably been detained by a mob of white people. Um, so he was very lucky. Um, this is Soho. Um, I saw his father giving a press conference with Benjamin Crump and Al Sharpton, and he pulled out a musical instrument and started playing it. That sickened me. Um, the incident reminded me of the young black male who was accused of butt-grabbing a white female, I believe also in New York, either early this year or last year, and um, found out that it was like his book bag that brushed up against her, but she was so aggressive. Um, not a straight old black man at all. Um, lastly, Joe Clark, um, the type of black middle that whites, I could see whites making a movie out of, um, taming the young Negro animals with illegal tactics, um, kicking out students for reasons that were not in line with the law, locking the fire exits, um, putting children in danger. His discipline techniques were not be acceptable on a white student at all. Uh, and um, they made a movie out of them. Typical of white people. I'll mute my mind. Thank you. Context of white supremacy. Uh, much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Uh, let's see. Other folks with a hand uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes. And, uh, 
just in case if anybody uh, did not know about that principal, he was he was on every major quote unquote talk show during that time. Phil Donahue and whatnot. He was like a he became a instant celebrity for his uh, measures of uh, taming the the Negro teenagers. Uh, became very popular. Uh, yes. Um, uh, I was just thinking about the, uh, the incident with the, uh, white female who reportedly, uh, wrestled a, a uh, I think he was four, 14 years old. Uh, I think it was, I think it said 14, 14 year old, uh, uh, young person. Uh, the, I've, I've just been thinking about on what possible code, that I would uh, enact, uh, and uh, the first thing thought come to my mind is to reduce the numbers of targets uh, uh, f- from her. Uh, and in that particular case, it would have been the my quote unquote offspring uh, to reduce that target. I would have I would have handled that phone. I would have quickly gotten that phone uh, and. Uh, made myself the target first. That's the first thing. Uh, either put him in a cab, because they were going somewhere from my understanding. I could be wrong, but I think they were, he was, both him and his offspring was on their way going somewhere uh, when this incident took place. Uh, I don't know if, I, if he could have gotten back up to the room because I, I, I think I heard that that the white woman had was getting assistance from the hotel itself and of course they have keys uh that sort of thing but uh if not it would have been to the room or if that was a problem then I would have put him in a cab and wherever he that we were supposed to be going he would have gone and with me with the phone and I would you know would have dealt with it from there uh, and uh yeah uh no DCS program Today, uh, as you probably would know, because uh, schools is not uh, finished from quote unquote winter break yet, uh, but I'm assuming that uh, once it gets started again, probably next Saturday, that uh, it would be back business as usual. I sent off and will be receiving the entire series of Eyes on the Prize as a part of the audiovisual aspect of the program on a daily basis, uh, because it's something that, that appears to be uh, conducive uh, for all age groups to whereas uh, instances of quote unquote racism, white supremacy can be observed by uh, the ones who are seven years old to the age of 15, 16 years old. And they, they, all those ages can get something out of from that level of uh, uh, filmatography. And uh, that's all I have to say. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, that is logical. Uh, try to reduce the number of uh, targets if you're in that sort of situation uh, to give <clears throat> less opportunities uh, for racists to uh, attack. Uh, I think in that sort of situation, maybe you get the child to go back up to the room or get them to a vehicle or 
you know, whatever it is. So that way anything will just be coming at you and then you can just try and be as alert as possible, but at least get your child out of the situation. But that is the sort of thing. That's why really important. Be talking to your offspring about racism, white supremacy, and then you all can automatically or already be talking about a code. If something should happen, we've had parents who've called them before who've talked about being out in public. Something happened. We even had a parent. She had the situation. Uh, she attempted to go to one of her children. I think they had like a school athletic competition or something and uh they were gonna go uh so called family attempt to go together and uh one of her children was accosted and a whole lot of folks got involved in it she had to go defend uh her daughter and just got really nasty like it's so important and she was saying the same thing so important speak to your children about racism so hopefully not but if something like this happens you all already know you can get eye contact with them. And if it's a sentence or a word or whatever it is, they already know. Boom. Do this. If I want you to go, go upstairs, go to the room, go to the car, whatever it is. Boom. That way I already know they're safe. They're going to do what I told them to do. I'll, you know, neutralize the situation as best I can. Then go check in and we can talk about process, what happened and everything. But that's why it's so critically important. So in those moments, you ought the metaphor, you all can be on the same page. You'll have the same counter racist understanding. This is a dangerous moment. Boom. This is what dad wants me to do. This is what mom wants me to do or whatever it is. And mom, dad, boom, you work out the code from your end and then go be an attempted parent afterward. Uh, let's see other folks who dialed in hand up commentary to share proceed. May I be heard? Greetings, caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, it looks like uh, that on the news they played, the uh, the victim of racism was back on the uh, the Gator basketball court. Looks like he was in, I guess, like his warm-ups. So I don't know if he played or not. Uh, but apparently our coach got in trouble for being sneaky, uh, having uh, incorrect contact with high school uh, students um, and their coaches, I guess people who he plans to have uh, signed to get onto the football team. So he was fine and I guess put on probation for a year or something like that. and apparently also <laughs> there was some uh, nasty, well, I think racist comments saying that uh, some of the players should get their scholarships taken away and they don't deserve to be here um, because I guess they opted out for the draft. Um, but another story, uh, January 1st, Rosewood, they declared it Rosewood Day because um, Ted Yoho, I believe, signed a bill to put it into effect. But I think it's, yeah, it's the 98th year since the, uh, the terrorism that happened on that day. Uh, and the racist suspect, Kat Kamek, she hasn't even started her term yet. And she's already showing dedication to... Uh, I guess protests uh, 
the electoral college for uh, January the 6th. So she uh, is the new white woman that got voted into being a congresswoman. And she already wanted to get another white person kicked out of a Congress because I guess he was having a cowbell situation with a a Chinese woman. And uh, she called a spy saying he need to get out of here. Like he need to, I'm paraphrasing, but she basically saying he need to leave another right, another white person because you know, the person is on pictures with a, uh, a non-white female. So apparently I guess they were doing some things. I, I just worded that way. Um, uh, as far as that, the victim of racism that was in the hospital, that it looks like she recorded a video. It's very uh, sad to hear that. And black people definitely are being mistreated constantly um, in the hospitals. And I just definitely just want to tell people, uh, let other victims know to just be careful out there. I do agree with drinking water, eating healthy and getting good, great sleep too as well. Sleep and rest, very important. Um, and that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, sir. Quality rest. So important. Uh, Dr. Susan Moore, doctor, I mean, uh, Dr. Firefighter, retired firefighter, uh, was talking about her yesterday with that video. Like they, I don't think it was included in the audio segment that we heard, but there were many reports. The hospital in Indiana where she passed away at uh, and she made the video and everything saying that they practiced racism against her. Uh, Some of their white staff responded saying that she was intimidating. Now I know under normal circumstances, pre Rona, we got the uh, toxic black male, the angry black female. I know we got all that, but I mean a physician with the Rona is intimidating. That's your excuse. That's going to be your response. She's dead now. I think, what is it? The young people, they call that uh, throwing shade, which should be in the word guide because that's just another one. Same thing with cream de la cream. Something bad is darkening uh, the person, but that's your lame PR response. She was intimidating. You don't have anything else. That's what we got. We did sensitivity training and that's the result. We were we were frightened. Same thing. That's the same thing that they say when they kill a black person. We were intimidated, frightened, scared, had the bulging fist muscles. Same thing as O.J. Simpson. So, yeah, we couldn't couldn't give her any pain medication or adequately deal with the Rona. Uh, Again, we will be here on Wednesday. Stephen Singular Legacy of deception a white man who apparently unless I miss well he might have changed his mind that has happened a few times but I think he is of the opinion that OJ Simpson did not commit these crimes uh, and that we should pay a lot of attention both to the racism around Mark Furman and uh, his long antics uh, both as an officer and beyond uh, but also a system that would support and defend a Mark Furman and then as I said even looking beyond Timothy McVeigh like are he and Mark Furman homies like are they hanging out together in Idaho before 
all of this goes down, like, uh, yeah, it should be a very interesting read. Come with uh, questions. We'll ask him if he's read old Jeff Tubin's book. If he's seen the FX series, uh, should be a hoot uh, question. A white person this year, Wednesday, Stephen singular legacy of deception is the book. Uh, any other comments, questions, observations folks need to share before we conclude Grant, we'll assume folks are good. Uh, let's see. The folks at Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg and company, uh, they have been staunchly opposed to Gusty's efforts. Like I've met much more resistance than suspected Nashville bomber, uh, Anthony Quinn Warner. Uh, they have been restricted. It's like a soft restriction. Like they'll allow me to post an event. And it, so I posted yesterday for the neutralizing workplace racism. I attempted to post for today compensatory call in restricted. Wouldn't let me post the event. I think the event is posted for uh, Stephen Singular for Wednesday. The book club isn't up yet. So I'm not really. And there's no explanation as to why you're not allowed like they don't say well oh you said negro or you know something that you threatened a white person or you know something there's no this is why the event is not there it's just it will allow one day it will allow and then one day it won't so be mindful uh you can check as i said we normally uh tweet the events and i'll post them on facebook anyway i just have been restricted in posting events so expect no easy victories. Uh, it has been a struggle for a dozen years with attempted counter racism and the context of white supremacy, uh, might lead me to suspect that racists would prefer if the cows were not on the air. So we will attempt to continue broadcasting. Uh, we should be here minimum on Wednesday, maybe before we shall see, but at minimum Wednesday, 8 PM Eastern, we will look forward to it. If you have any suggestions, thoughts prior to then drop an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com. Much obliged for all the folks who invested. I've been so pleased having my OJ or my Johnny Cochran book, which is about the OJ Simpson trial. Uh, the Amazon wished list, uh, under Gus T. Renegade. Thanks again. All the investors who have nabbed items over a dozen years. It'll be next month. Crazy to say, but a dozen years of attempted counter racist broadcasting. I hope it has been more constructive than not. Thanks all for sharing a bit of your first Saturday of the new year. Uh, let's try and make it constructive. Uh, let's make sure we are eating healthy, resting well, drinking lots of water and having regular fruitful dialogue, counter racist dialogue with our attempted family members so that hopefully we will never have to use any of these techniques or strategies that we talk about and such. But man, if something happens while you're out in public, we are all ready to go. We've already had these conversations. You know what to do. I know what to do. It only takes, you know, a look sometimes or a few words. 
we already know what we're supposed to do to keep each other safe and to function constructively. So have those conversations and share these type of reports, especially if you have children, uh, so that there will be a sense of urgency as to, wow, why do people say, oh, dad, Thomas is always making things about racism. Why, why are we always talking about this? Oh, I get it. I get it. This racism, white supremacy thing is a big problem all the time, all over the world. That said, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We will need our brain computer. Uh, Man, I told you the sobriety checkpoints will probably continue through Monday, I would think, regardless of where you happen to be. I would not want to have to be out bumping to a Mark Furman and have to breathe into something or whatever it is. Do you have a mask or any other kooky questions? Uh, If you got to go out, definitely be sober. If you are out, you should be thinking about that incident that happened uh, at the hotel lounge. Lots of those. Remember the incident? They had the woman. She was chased white man with a chainsaw. Lots of things to think about when you go out. Be aware of your surroundings. They were talking about potential protests in this week involving some of the different uh, police shootings and things. I would certainly not encourage anyone to be out in those protests. I don't think it's safe, but BGQ. If you got to be out, you are hyper vigilant. In my opinion, if it looks like, uh oh, rowdy white woman, uh oh, loud white man, maybe I need to get out of here round up if you you know your offspring are present if you're by yourself great (laughs) group of one we are leaving if you got other folks convene let's get it together this does not look safe again we're not doing any verbal uh confrontations it's not gonna be a whole lot of going back and forth and yelling and all the rest of it that's not happening that even even i take a moment that situation with the phone That might be another one. I know. I think someone else had mentioned it about the police because it could escalate. That might be another one where it's called the police, right? Because if someone has stolen something, the procedure is not grab a baseball bat and bunk up upside the head. Like, especially not like out the hotel. That's not the procedure. Call the enforcement officers, right? You could even get the manager. Call the enforcement officers. That's what I did with the mailbox situation. That one might be another one. Someone has stolen your phone. Wow. You should call the authorities. Yes. Just an idea. Police don't always make situations better, but no verbal confrontations. Uh, It would be very precise choice of words. No going back and forth, yelling, cursing. Don't think that that's going to help any of these situations. Not going to be an improvement. Why you want to be sober so you can do a great job picking your words. Uh, If you got to go out, it's something serious. Going to be sober. Driver or passenger, you are buckled. If you are driving, you are not on the cell phone. Again, we got to be very aware of what's happening around us. And we're trying just doing the little things that we can to minimize contact with the Amber Geigers, the Andy Coys, Mark Furman's of the known universe. Uh, It is small. But staying sober, buckling up, little things that we can do. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. 
remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Tao signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.